Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, DC area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, I want to share some information about CoEnterprises, my company. It serves income-producing real estate market participants through four distinct platforms. First, I advise early-stage real estate companies on securing project financing and on forming and executing operating and financial strategy. My current clients include Brick Lane, a multifamily investment and development firm who began in D.C. and has expanded to the Southeast U.S., with many acquisitions and projects, and One Circle Co., an early stage multifamily developer and investor in Boston who was nearing their first development project. Two, career counseling for early and mid career real estate professionals with a program approach, including two one hour sessions and follow up six months progress reports. My clients range from recent college graduates to mid-career executives who are contemplating change. And three, of course, this podcast, sharing knowledge and insights of market leaders. And finally, for deriving from the podcast listener base and my experience as a ULI mentor, I initiated the iconic journey in CRE, a community of young professionals from 22 to 40 years old who participate and contribute to online and live meetings, property tours, mastermind groups, book readings, and career resources. In summary, CoEnterprise's mission is to motivate and guide high-achieving individuals and young companies to get the results they want, and in doing so, to elevate the D.C. area real estate community. To learn more, click on my website, coenterprises.com, or reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com, to learn about any of these services. Thank you for listening. For this episode of the podcast, I'm interviewing Roger Frechette, who is the Managing Principal of Interface Engineering, which is an MEP engineering firm, which is mechanical systems, electrical, and plumbing. Roger's resume covers three decades of design experience, including sustainable energy, master planning, and many significant iconic buildings, including the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, the Greenland Tower in Wuhan, China, Plot 16 in Moscow, BBVA in Mexico City, and the Pearl River Tower in Guangzhou, China. In 2004, he was recognized by the U.S. Congress for his work in sustainability, and he's currently a senior fellow in the Design Futures Council. Roger has... (laughs) A very interesting background that we get into. His parents were in a motorcycle gang when he was born. And so he, as, a, as an infant, he was cradled in the back of a, of a, a chopper with his parents and was brought up in that environment. So it was a little interesting and different. It was more of a lower middle class environment in, in uh, suburban uh, Massachusetts. But he had one 
natural skill as a child. He was very fast. So he became a track star in high school and was recruited for college. He talks about that. So he didn't know what he was going to study because the track coach says, what are you picking out? So he had to pick out a course. He picked engineering just arbitrarily. Turns out he did pretty well. So he started humbly in an office below a bowling alley in suburban Boston and then excelled there and then joined a, firm, a national firm called Vanderweil. Rose in 10 years to become president. Then he went on to SOM, Sidmore Owings Merrill, as one of the few MEP engineers at the firm, and then was assigned as a young man on some major projects, including the Burj Khalifa and the Pearl River projects I cited earlier. So in our discussion, he discusses his profession and what MEP is relative to other engineering practices. We get into some of his projects, including the American Geophysical Union project here in Washington, D.C., which is the first net zero energy building in the city. And then the conversation uh, after our interview is with Ramiz Munawar, who is one of my iconic journey members, who was trained as an architect and is now an asset manager for Jamestown. He shares his perspectives and his interesting viewpoints, including on a, a model which we'll share of the Burj Khalifa that he built while he was in an architectural school. So kind of an ironic situation. So without further ado, here is Roger Frechette. So Roger Frechette, welcome to Icons of DCRI Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your current position at Interface Engineering and give a high-level explanation about what Interface does, its role in the industry. And we will dive more deeply later, but just give us a high-level view at this point. Uh, sure. Uh, my role, I am the managing principal at Interface. Uh, Interface is a 53-year-old building services uh, design firm, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, fire protection. Uh, the firm is based in Portland, Oregon. We have roughly 200 and 60 engineers, designers, and analysts across the country. We have offices in Portland, San Francisco, LA, Honolulu, Oakland, Denver, Chicago, San Antonio, and of course here in Washington, D.C., where, where I live and work. How long have you been with, with Interface now? Uh, almost 10 years now uh, since I've joined the firm. Great. About nine, nine, nine and a half. Well, we'll go back into your career a little bit further, but before we do that, I wanted to really get into kind of your origins a little bit, your, your origin story and where you grew up and uh, all that good stuff, your schooling and all that, if you could get into that with me a little bit. Yeah, sure. So I was born and raised in Massachusetts, a New England boy. I went to elementary school and uh, high school in a very small town by the name of Ashburnham, Massachusetts, which I think is best known for having the gravesite of the person who shot the shot heard around the world during the revolutionary, oh, really? the start of the Revolutionary War. Only a, a couple thousand people in the whole town. I, I think there were only 26 boys in my, my graduating uh, class, which covered two towns. So, so it was a small blue collar rural community in, in New England. And yeah, so so I, I would say I was a 
mediocre uh, student in, in high school. My, my grades were quite average, but, but I was fast, John. I could run the quarter mile in 48 seconds. Uh, I, could run the, I could run the 100-yard dash in about 9.8 seconds. Wow. So my, my, my nickname in, in high school that was the flying one. That's, that's what my friends called me. So I bring that up only because it kind of leads to later events within my uh, life and career that have kind of get me where I am right now. So what did your folks do? Well, again, it was it was a kind of a blue collar town, strange upbringing. My father was the head of a motorcycle gang called the Slaves. Really? Yeah, he drove a big uh, Harley chopper. And, oh my uh, goodness! As as part of the Slaves, we were at war with the Huns, and the Slaves were a precursor uh, to the Hell's Angels up in New England. Oh my goodness! Uh, and we lived essentially in a commune. It was a, a clubhouse for the bike members. My mother was uh, the bartender at the local biker uh, bar, a place by the name of the Log Cabin in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. So it was an interesting uh, <laughs> upbringing. <laughs> oh, we. we we did not own a car, so my father had what they call a treetop seat on his chopper. So my mother would sit behind my father, and then there'd be a third seat that they would put me on and wrap bungee cords around me to hold me under the seat as we cruised around town. What a lifestyle. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. It was crazy. So not, not, your, uh, average, not your average story, perhaps, but, but it was a unique up, upbringing. My, my parents were very young when they got married. In fact, I think my mother was only 17 when I first came along. They were no way ready to be uh, parents. Did you <laughs> have any siblings at all? Forced into it. Uh, I do. I have, a, I have a younger brother. He's six years younger than me. He's, he's uh, has retired from the Air Force. He lives out in Las Vegas right now. A very uh -huh. successful businessman. But yeah, it was, it was just the two of us growing. So you went to high school there and then... You went off to college in South at Southeastern Mass. Talk about that. What why'd you go there and what did you aim at when you were there? I'm not sure I was aiming. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I went to high school. Again, I was I, I my focus was really on athletics and running. I was not all that focused on my grades or, or schooling. But uh, when I when I was in my senior year in high school, I got a phone call from the coach of the track and field team at the Boston University with an invitation to go and talk to them about running for BU. So I, I went and talked to them and, and it was funny. They gave me a tour of the track and the facilities and I met the team members. And then the coach asked me, he said, well, what are you going to do when you're here? I said, well, I'm going to run. <laughs> he says, no, no. What's your major uh, going to be? I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, you can't go to college unless you're taking <laughs> classes. You, know, you, 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 you have to have a major. I was like, okay. I said, so what do you got? <laughs> So we started rattling off all the options for majors, uh, and I was waiting for one that sounded cool. And he brought up aerospace engineering. And I said, oh, that sounds good. I'll, I'll, I'll sign up for that. Well, at the end of the day, I mean, I, we were poor. We didn't have money to, to go to college. Their intent was to give me a scholarship, but it was an Olympic year. And turns out a bunch of the BU students had qualified for the Olympics, and they redirected their funds. and. I was left without a scholarship, so without a place to go to school. I was so certain I was going to go to BU, I never even applied to any other colleges. Oh, really? Yeah. So when the summer rolled around, I didn't have a place to go. I 
Ran away from home, moved up to Maine, and joined a uh, carnival-type amusement park up in Old Orchard Beach up in Maine. And uh, yeah, worked at an amusement park at night and slept on the beach during the day oh uh, throughout uh, the summer of 1984. Finally returned home when it got cold out uh, in September. And uh, my mother said, hey, you know, you've been getting phone calls all summer from this coach at a school from called Southeastern Massachusetts University. SMU in North Dartmouth, Massachusetts. The school doesn't exist anymore. It's since been absorbed by the the UMass uh, system. Mm -hmm. So I went and visited him and had a similar conversation. He wanted me to run for their team. He asked me what major I'd like to do. And this time I was ready. I said, aerospace engineering. (laughs) And he said, well, that's great, but we don't have that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, what do you have that's close to aerospace engineering? He says, well, you know, we have mechanical engineering. And I said, good, I'll take that. So that is all the thinking that went into me becoming a mechanical engineer uh, back in the day. I went, I, I ran for them throughout college. And, and yeah, my, my studies were in mechanical engineering. Graduated with a Bachelor of Science. In, in did you have an inclination for math in high school, at least? Or did you no. like math? No. No, no. It was a, it was an odd college experience also. Although it was not a full scholarship that I received, it was a part scholarship. Mm-hmm. It only paid for certain things, but I didn't even have the money to pay for the things that were not covered. So, so I worked full-time, 40 hours a week, uh, all throughout college. But they had an interesting setup when it came to, to, to grades in that school. And they essentially said, if your grade on your final exam was higher than your average grade, then that was the grade you received for the year. So you could essentially fail all year long, get a good grade on the final, and get an A for the year. So that's what I did. I never went to college. I never attended class. I never went to any of the you know the lectures. I would work full time. And two days before the final exam, I'd go to the bookstore. I'd buy the book. I would lock myself in a room. I'd buy a couple of two-liter bottles of Coca-Cola for a caffeine rush. And I would uh, memorize the book from front to back. I'd go take the test. I'd get an A. And then I'd fall asleep for two days and forget it all. (laughs) (laughs) But I managed to get through four years of school without really ever attending class. Hmm. It's a little unfortunate because I, I missed the college experience yeah. and I don't have any friends from college because I never got to know any of my fellow students, but hmm. it was a, it was a means to an end. I ended up mm-hmm. with a, a four year bachelor's degree from an accredited engineering school. So there it is. So it uh, worked out. Long answer to your question. I apologize. <laughs> well, that's about as, I would have to say that's the most unusual background of anyone I've interviewed yet. <laughs> By far. Yeah. <laughs> well, there My it is. My goodness. Wow. Yeah. So how did then how did your engineering career start? I mean, did did you start right away or was there some other thing you wanted to do before? It was it was tough timing. I graduated in the spring of 1988. And New England was, uh, the economy was not in good shape. The, 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 the students who had graduated the same year as me, they were all having a hard time landing jobs. But, but I hustled and I ended up getting two job opportunities later in that year. The first was to go to work for a Japanese candle making factory as an on-site engineer. 
Uh, I ended up turning that one down. The second was to go to work for an MEP engineering firm in Middleborough, Massachusetts. Again, very rural a town. And it was a place by the name of Charlie, Charlie Crowley Engineering. It was a small firm that did mainly schools and police stations and fire stations. The office space was located in the basement, uh, an unconditioned basement underneath a bowling alley and a strip mall. <laughs> oh my God. I, I, it was, it was. I learned a lot in a couple of years. And once I decided that I had learned what I was going to learn there, I decided to head into the big city, into Boston, Massachusetts, and, and get a job for a, a reputable uh, engineering firm. So, so that's what I did, trying to remember what year it was, but I think it was probably about 1991. I got a job working for a company called Siskin Hennessy up in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. <clears throat> and we were working on a lot of kind of great projects, not only in the United States, but had an opportunity to work on a couple of international projects as well. I remember working on my first uh, tall building in China back, back in the early 90s uh, at Cisco's office. So when you started in engineering, what, I mean, you just cranked away in college and got all this knowledge and stuff. So you start in the basement of a bowling alley. <laughs> first job. I mean, what did you really understand the concept of what you were doing initially or what I had I had no idea. I had no idea. I really did not. So when did you really catch on? I mean, what 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 was the 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 point where yeah, now I'm starting to get this. You know, now I understand what this is all about and what my clients want and all this kind of thing. So when when did that when did that light bulb come on? I'm not sure I'm quite there yet. I'm, I'm moving in that direction. Some days I, I think I'm uh, close, but but um, I, I think it's a little bit of a, a moving. But it, it did. I would say it did all start coming together at that period of time. You know, I really started understanding not just you know the the engineering that that goes into putting a building together, but just how the business works and how. You know, just watching business development happen and, and watching the interactions between managers and contractors and, you know, architects and other sub-consultants. It was, it, it really did grow on me. <laughs> I kind of fell into it, but by that time, I was really starting to see that this was quite an interesting and unique career path that I was on. Did you enjoy the the actual practic practical part of it? Uh or did you like the design and the creative part of, of, of the side of, it, of the business when you were getting into it initially? I think initially it was, it was probably more the, the problem solving uh, aspect of it. You know, it was, it was really just trying to, you know, work through calculations to prove that what you had you know, put together was, was appropriate and, and, and creating that sort of supporting documentation. You know, we, you know, go, moving from theory into practice takes a little while. You know, and my, my college work was 100% theoretical. Mm -hmm. So the applications piece of it took me a little while. But, but, but yeah, when you could see the two of them coming together and ending up in the same place, uh, it, uh, it, was, it was interesting. It was definitely interesting. So you were in you were in Cambridge then in the early '90s, and you said you started working on tall buildings at that point. Um, 
Um, yeah, I can remember doing uh, one project in a city called Anhui, China. I had never heard of the, the place before. Uh, uh-huh. but I, I remember doing a, probably a 60-story building. Never had the opportunity at that time to, to travel over there. But, uh, but yeah, still, it was, it was a big project. It was, it was huge in scale. You know, the town I grew up in, the tallest building was two stories tall. So, so to, to work on a project that was 60 was uh, really kind of fascinating to me. So, so I loved working uh, for the company Cisco and Hennessy up in Cambridge, but I, I ran into a little bit of a problem. I guess it was 1993. I had just gotten married and Right after I got married, my wife's parents, they lost, uh, or her, my father, her, her father lost his job in Massachusetts. And again, the economy, economy up there seems to be always bad, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he could not find a, a comparable uh, job in Massachusetts. He ended up taking a job down at Roanoke, Virginia. So my wife's mother and father and little brother and dog, they all packed up and, and moved to Virginia. And we were left back up there in Massachusetts. And my wife, you know, she was young. She was probably 22 years old at the time, mm-hmm. uh, having a separation anxiety, being away from her parents for the first time. Right. So almost every weekend, we were driving from Massachusetts to Roanoke, Virginia. It's a long drive. Yeah, yeah. Just so that she could spend a couple of hours uh, with them. And then we would turn around and drive back in a week. Those days, we did not have the money to fly, so driving was the only option. And I did that for many, many months. And eventually, I got to the point where I said, this is not sustainable. It's trying to be a good husband. So I said, mm-hmm. listen, we're just going to move down to Roanoke, Virginia, and I quit my job, and I'll find some kind of work. Whatever it is people do in Roanoke, that's, I'll go do that. So, so I went into my boss and sat down with him and, and gave him my two-week resignation. He was not happy about it, but he, he took my letter and my two weeks went by and it was on my last day of, of work. My boss came to me and said, I need you to do something today. I need you to fly to New York City. I said, I can't. It's my last day. The guys are taking me out for lunch. You know, <laughs> I can't mm-hmm. do that. He says, no, nope, no, nope, you got to do it. So I flew to New York and walked in and had a meeting uh, with the president of Siskin Hennessy at that time. You know, this was the largest MEP firm in the country back at that time. So he uh, sat me down and he said, well, you know, we've been talking about it. We've decided not to accept your resignation. So I said, well, you know, that it's too late. I've already rented my apartment. I've already loaded all my stuff onto a truck. It's already halfway to Roanoke right now. You know, I've already cleaned out my desk. (laughs) I said, I appreciate it, but it's too late. So we got into this whole discussion about why I was leaving and and all that. and I told him, I said, it's not about the company. I love the company. It's really about the situation. And, and Siskin and Hennessy does not have an office you know, down that way. He said, okay, well, we can fix that. Why don't you open up an office for Siskin and Hennessy down there? Yes. So I said, I was, you know, I was 26 years old at the time. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So I asked him, I said, why would Siskin and Hennessy want to have an office in Roanoke, Virginia? And he said, well, we don't, you know, but Northern Virginia, it would be good. You know, the Washington, D.C. metro area. Right. So I, to me, this was absolutely perfect. I thought it was a fantastic opportunity. I got to stay with the company that I really enjoyed working with. And there was enough of a separation between Roanoke and D.C. where I didn't have to live with my in-laws. I could still be just a couple hours away. Nope. So I, 
I called up, uh, called up my wife and said, change your plans. You know, we're heading to Washington, D.C. So that's, uh, that's when I first arrived here back in 1993. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that was good. It was a fantastic run. I don't think they really had a lot of expectation that I was going to do much. I, I, I know that at that moment, they were just trying to find a way uh, for me not to leave the firm. But, uh, but I took it seriously. I was like, hey, I'm going to run an office. I'm going to need people. I'm going to need clients. I'm going to need projects. And Right. And I ran or I, you know, I, I had that meeting on a Friday. By Monday morning, I was in DC and and running around looking for office space, and <laughs> and, I, and I was going. And and that's where it got weird. Over the course of the next two years, I was successful in winning a, a number of large projects and hired uh, a bunch of people. And by a bunch, I want to say probably seven or eight people at that time. But suddenly, it was a viable office for them. And I think they got nervous because again, I was still in my late twenties and I think they were concerned about the optics of having an office of such a large prominent firm being run by a, by a kid. So uh, they decided that they were going to um, go out and hire someone on top of me. So they, they hired this gentleman from Colorado. He was you know, 40 years experience and they came down and introduced him to me and said, here's your new boss, you know, and, you know, you're, you're going to learn a lot from him. And in retrospect, I, I, I probably would have if I had stayed, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but I was young and bold and ambitious. I had, you know, I was ready to take over the world. And I said, no, you know, I, I, I now have the taste of what it's like <laughs> being the boss and running an office and going and getting my own work. And then I liked it. Yeah. So so I still had connections back up in Boston. So I called up a gentleman by the name of Gary Vandewile, who, who is the owner of Vandewile Engineers up in Boston. Yeah, they were they were a decent sized firm. They were probably three three hundred and fifty people at the time. And I said, Hey, Gary, you know, you know, you really should have an office down here in D.C. There's a lot going on. I can help you out. I've got I've got a network now. I can I can find projects for you. I have engineers that like working with me. So I flew up and met with them and we shook hands and in 1995 opened up uh, Vandewile Engineers in uh, Washington DC. I guess technically it was uh, Old Town Alexandria that we we first set up, but that was our we called it our MCR, our National Capital Region office. Mm-hmm. And then the next 10 years were after that were just unbelievable. We uh, we worked hard we, we scrambled, won great projects. We assembled a powerful team. And through that 10-year period, we became the by far the you know the largest MEP engineering firm in the Mid-Atlantic, created a substantial presence. So it was an amazing, amazing run. So who are your clients then? Um, just talk through some of your projects and clients. And were they all in the DC or in the Mid-Atlantic region, or did you do some stuff internationally? or nationally and internationally beyond that? At that time, I think it was almost 100% of our work was within the, you know, maybe as far south as, you know, North Carolina and as far north as uh, New York City. But but it was all, you know, within the Northeast corridor. And the projects, it was really a, an eclectic group of project types. We were doing everything from embassies to labs to office buildings to retail, you know, 
retail stores. Our, our, our clients were mostly architectural firms uh, in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., firms like Gensler and HOK, and, and there were firms like Smith Henchman and Grills back then. Sure. <laughs> you know, so yeah, so it was, it was mostly that, but but it was so it was a great cross section of, of work type, uh, a great cross section of of architectural clients. But but I would say ninety five percent of our clients were architectural firms. Stepping back about the engineering profession in general, it sounds like based on what you said earlier, there's divisions. You know, you you don't do civil and structural or you know MEP. Typically, that doesn't exist all under one umbrella. It's it's different different umbrellas. And why is that? Just because of the, the staging of the project and when people are really focused on that aspect of the project itself? Talk talk through that a little bit. You can. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Uh, you know, I think part of it is the staging of the project. I think part of it is liability, you know, for us to do, you know, it, it's one thing if an air handling unit breaks down, it's a different thing if the building falls over, you know, so, so you know, most most structural firms that I work with, that's what they do, structural engineering. They don't they don't, you know, move outside the boundaries of of just that. Now when I started in the business, there there's you know, you had big firms, you had medium-sized firms, you had small firms. What I've witnessed over the last 35 years is that the medium-sized firm, and I consider I consider our, our firm to be medium-sized, those firms have almost gone away, you know, through acquisitions and mergers. We've largely ended up with kind of large conglomerate type firms where they do have all the services. They may not be in one regional location, but somewhere under their umbrella, they can bring lots of different services uh, to the table. And at the other end of the spectrum, you do have a handful of kind of small boutique specialized firms or or firms that that were set up as um, minority or small businesses that and they rely on that status you know to 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 get a lot of the work that they get but the the medium-sized firms they're really few and far between right now and I actually think it gives us a bit of a, it's a differentiator you know for <laughs> for our firm I think it actually helps us attract and retain employees and I think it helps it helps us to get work you know a lot of clients they don't want to work with the you know the, the huge mega firms they get caught up in the red tape. But at the same time, they know that the smaller firms can't necessarily uh, provide all the expertise and you know, experience that you know that they need, particularly for the you know the bigger projects. So interesting, interesting. So you were at Vanderwild for ten years. Um, ten years, yeah. Yeah, talk through. Yeah, I guess you ended up as president of the firm. Is that is that correct? That was my title. Yeah, at the time I left as president. <laughs> What what happened? Why why did you leave? If you you seemed like you were doing really well there, enjoying it, and rose to president, what happened? Well, there there were a couple of things that all happened at the same time. Uh, one is that that was my title, but at the at that time the ownership was largely still with Gary Vanderweil and his children, and we were going through what I would uh, call an awkward ownership and and stock transition, and I was not happy uh, with. With the way they were trying to set it up, so that that had caused me to pause a bit. But I think even more than that, I was I was bored, John. <laughs> I had been running MEP offices at that time for, geez, nearly fifteen years, you know. And 
when I had started running these firms, I was the engineer. I I did have the opportunity to do some creative things and, and roll up my sleeves and design. By the time 2005 rolled around, I was pushing paper. You know, I was the boss, the manager responsible for the, you know, financials and the balance sheet and all that. And I was getting so separated from the role of being an engineer. I really didn't like it. So, so I, I did, I did want to find a way to challenge myself and, and then SOM came along and boy, that, that was an opportunity to, to kind of completely shake things up. <laughs> so what had happened at Skidmore owned and Merrill there, you know, the, the firm was formed, I think back in the 1930s and it was really established as an integrated architectural and engineering firm. I can't remember one of Skidmore Owens, maybe it was Merrill who was an engineer, but one of the three was an engineer. So even when they were first formed, it was a AE firm. In Chicago, and right? It was started in Chicago. Uh, right. Then they eventually opened in New York City and, and San Francisco. Those are the three big offices. And then they have a handful of smaller offices. But, but at one time, back in the maybe late 70s, early 80s, uh, there were more than a thousand MEP engineers working for Skidmore Owens and Merrill. Hmm. I mean, it was truly a big, somewhat balanced AE practice. And then over the years, for various reasons, the engineering arm just began to shrink and shrink and shrink and get smaller and different offices let their engineers go. And by the time 2005 rolled around, none of the offices had engineers except for Chicago, and they just had a small handful. So the partners of SOM got together and they said, we gotta, we got to pick a direction. We either have to get rid of the few remaining engineers we have and forget about this notion about being an integrated practice, or we're going to have to reinvest and, and uh, try to get back to our roots. So that's what they decided to do. They started this sort of international search competition, if you will, to find someone to come in to regrow the engineering it was the strangest interview I'd ever been to. I was asked to go to an interview in Chicago. I showed up. I walked into the room. There were 25 people sitting around a table. Really? And I sat down at the end of it. I sat down. They said, okay, you may begin. I was like, begin what? <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were waiting for me to give them a presentation on why I should be there. But long story short, back and forth, they offered me the job. And then I had a real decision to make. And it was a tough one. I mean, I had built a career in DC. I was very well established. I had a very solid network of clients. I had a lot of engineers that I had enjoyed working with over the years. But out there, I had an opportunity to test myself to see whether I could do it. Could I leave all that behind and rebuild a new career from scratch? And, and that's just a challenge I wanted to take on. What was it at SOM that really attracted you? Was it the international nature of it? Or what 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 aspect? I mean, the scale of deals that they were working on, or what was it? It was a little bit of everything. I mean, I was, you know, I, again, I had never worked, you know, until the days way back in uh, up in Boston, I had never worked on any international projects. You know, they were working around the world. The projects were much larger than what I had been accustomed to. There was a great focus, or I should say there was a focus on sustainability. That's one of the reasons why they hired me. In the Vanderwild days, I caught the sustainability bug, you know, and had the opportunity to work on projects like the 
EPA headquarters building, Research Triangle Park, and designed the National Wildlife Federation headquarters building in Reston. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I was on board early. <laughs> I think I think it was one of the first hundred people in the country to become uh, lead accredited. You know, and uh, and sustainability was the new big thing, and everybody wanted to be in it. And I think SOM at that time felt as though they had missed the train. They were behind. And so when they when they talked to me, they wanted me to do two things. On one hand, they wanted me to rebuild their MEP presence internally. And secondly, they wanted me to help them get back in the game with respect to sustainable design. So when I decided to join them, I formed two groups simultaneously. One was the, the sustainability design group, which was for MEP. And the other was what we call the performative design group, which was really a mixture of engineers, architects, uh, planners. It, it, it was the think tank, you know, the, for 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 what will buildings uh, look like in the future. And that group that I created back then still is up and running within within SOM. So it's, it has stood the test of time. I think I started that in in two thousand and five. So. You got you caught the sustainability bug, you said. So talk yeah. about you know that evolution and you know the early lead tech lead standards and how they were set and what you how you got involved in that and what intrigued you about it. Well, there was uh, there was this woman who worked for HOK back then. Her name was uh, Sandy Mendler, and boy, she was. She was something else. I mean, she had become interested in sustainability and she would not let it go. I mean, any project she worked on with great force, you know, she would tell her own colleagues, her superiors, her clients, you really need to do this. You know, you really need, you know, we, we need to change the way we design buildings. We have to, you know, reduce the, the carbon footprint of our projects. We need to reduce our energy consumption. We need to stop doing all these bad things that are harmful to the environment. And and I, I had an opportunity to work on a couple of projects with her. And I think she beat it into me. I mean, <laughs> she she you know she looked at me and says, you're a mechanical engineer. You know, you 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 know you have to do this because you know the work that you do has such a big impact on you know the the the, the footprint of the building and the operational energy and operational carbon. And if you don't get on board, then I'm going to go find another engineer. So I was uh, scared straight. So I caught up on it, (laughs) read as much as I could on it, challenged our engineers internally of what we could do to begin to change uh, the paradigm. And and the more we looked into it, the the more we realized how much could be done. And, you know, in, in the United States, even today, you know, the energy consumed by buildings and the carbon associated with with buildings you know represents the, the largest piece of the carbon pie you know and and we know that we can do things that you know can reduce the energy consumption by a third a half three quarters uh, even a hundred percent now we we have projects that have been designed and built that are operating at what we call the positive energy realm you know, they, they've gone beyond net zero. They are able to contribute more than they more than they consume. So, so if you can do it, then the trick is how do you overcome all the obstacles that prevent you from from doing it? 
and and that's been the that's been the large focus of, of my career over the last fifteen years or so is breaking down those walls and finding ways to overcome those obstacles. So you were at SOM for how long? I was at SOM for five, uh, almost six years, I guess. And your practice kind of aimed in that direction you just mentioned in that energy focused, you know, lead, uh, you know, energy saving aspect, right? It did. I was there for probably less than a year and a project opportunity came along in Guangzhou, China. We were engaged in a competition set up by a group called CNTC, the Chinese National Tobacco Corporation, which is a quasi-government-owned, really a fully government-owned agency that produces cigarettes at a rate of about 500 times what, uh, or five times, I should say, what Philip Morris uh, would produce at that time. So they, they were the big cigarette they have for tobacco China. farms in, in, in China or did oh, they, they import do. their, yeah. They, they do, they do. But they had a, you know, they had an optics problem. And then it, that is that the Olympics were coming up in Beijing, the Summer Olympics. Right. And China was getting a lot of heat from the international community over a number of issues, but, but including their environmental China. practices, right? So they needed a symbol. <laughs> and, and again, the stars aligned. We had pitched this idea of doing a, a 2.1 million square foot, 71 story tower designed to be net zero energy. And mm. I think at any other time in history, they would have laughed at it, but they said, hey, you know, if we can do something like this, we can make a big deal about it. And this will help to offset some of that negative press that we've been getting. So, so we went over and pitched the idea to them and they loved it. And we were off to the races designing what would ultimately become the most energy efficient tall building in the world. And this was 2005, 2006. So t- talk about some of the creative aspects of that project that you came up with engineering wise. Sure. Just a couple of them. One of them, it was a, uh, it used a radiant cooling system which has been used really since the 1960s and 70s in Germany, but there was no built example of it in all of China. So it was a very, uh, very energy efficient system. They were very nervous about using it because uh, they, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't find any example of it in, in their country. We ended up having to take the chairman and a group of about 10 or 15 folks from the, the client group to Germany. And we went to, Munich and Bonn and Frankfurt and a few in Cologne and showed them, you know, a handful of examples, allowed them to touch it, feel it, ask questions. And at the end of that trip, they were like, yeah, let's do it. So that, that was, that was an innovation for Southeast Asia for sure. But I think the biggest innovation is we were sitting at a meeting one day and the structural engineer was having a conversation with the chairman and the chairman asked him, he's like, well, this is a tall building. I said, what, are we in a, a seismic zone? And the structural engineer said, yes, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> and, and the chairman said, what do you mean it doesn't matter? We have earthquakes, it doesn't matter? He says, no, not really. He said, because the wind forces that hit the side of the building on a tall tower like this are so substantial that if you size the structure to offset the wind force, then you have enough mass in the building to deal with a potential seismic event. Well, that led to this whole discussion about how strong is this force anyways? 
So he, you know, he gave some numbers and, and, you know, units of kips that nobody understood. And, and we all said, we don't understand. And he said, well, it's the equivalent of 5,000 African elephants all pushing on the side of the building simultaneously. And they're like, oh, okay, we can wrap our brain around that. So our performative design group took that and said, that's a tremendous force. How do we put that force to work? And we ended up changing the entire shape of the building and creating openings in the center of the building. We created four larger openings in the center of the building, created uh, these sort of Venturi curves and tested it in wind tunnels up in Toronto, Canada. And we learned that when wind hits the side of a building and then flows around the edges, it creates these, this what they call vortex shedding. Right. And it creates this big negative pressure on the backside of the building. So you got a positive pressure on pocket on one side of the building, a negative one on the other. And this is what causes the oscillation of a building. So typically, you just keep adding steel and concrete to slow down that oscillation. Well, when we put, you know, put these four large holes in the building, it relieved that pressure. So it led to a significant decrease in the amount of steel and concrete required to, to properly hold the building up. But the other thing that it does is you have that negative pressure on the backside of the building pulling air through the openings. So the wind wouldn't push air through the openings, but the pressure differential would pull air through it. And it turned out to be a very consistent air velocity at a very at a, at a pretty high velocity. <laughs> and we said, well, now we can put that to work. So we designed wind turbines to be installed in the center of the building to capture the energy as it was pulled through. Wow. And that, had, that, that had never been done before uh, in the world. So, so yeah, so that, that one I remember. Did, did those air, those turbines then basically drop the energy usage down to almost zero in the building or very low? No, I would say they were part of the overall, you know, collection of strategies used. You know, I would say those turbines only reduced the energy consumption by a couple of percent. But oh, when you're talking okay. about millions of square feet of building, a couple of percent is actually a, a lot of energy. Significant. Yeah, but but between that, we we had a we had a, a triple pane skin on the building, what we called an internally ventilated double wall facade. So the air in the space, a typical office building, the air in the space heads back to the core and back to a mechanical room. This building forced all the air to the perimeter through layers of glass and carried a lot of the heat energy away from the building before the mm -hmm. occupants could experience the heat. We had PV, I can't remember how many tens of thousands of square feet of photovoltaic cell built onto the into the skin of the building. But when you added them all together, it was a substantial decrease in energy. And then in the basement of the building, we designed a uh, essentially a natural gas-consuming uh, fuel cell plant that would, you know, net out. When you looked at the, not not from a site perspective, but from a source perspective, we were able to achieve uh, net zero energy from a from a source perspective. So unfortunately, we ran into regulatory issues. You know, the do all this, you have to net meter a building, and the Chinese government was not willing to net meter the building. Uh, so we ended up leaving this large cavity so that when the electric utility regulations finally caught up <laughs> with the rest of the world, they could install these devices and achieve uh, that net zero condition. Although on the day that they opened, 
You know, it's again, it's touted as the most energy efficient tower in the world. On day one, it was not a near net zero energy operation. Is it still functioning? Do you know? It's been 10 years since I've been there, but I've had friends that have gone over there and they have said yes. So, so that's good news. One, one interesting twist was the whole building, the building was designed to be largely the headquarters building for this tobacco company. When the building was done, it was so beautiful that when leaders of the government in Beijing looked at it and said, this is too nice for a government agency to use as their headquarters. So they, 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 forced, they, they forced the group into another older building and then put the, the building up for lease. So, <laughs> so interesting sort of twist. So are corporate yeah. users now using it then? Are companies yeah. private? Well, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know if there is such a thing as a private company in China, but <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not sure either. <laughs> not sure either. So that that was your big biggest project at SOM. Did you do anything else that was interesting while you were there? No, that was not near the biggest, but that was the one that I probably talked the most about. I would say most proud of. But I was the I led the engineering team for the design of the. Uh, Burj Khalifa in Dubai. So that is the world's tallest building and man-made structure. And 160 stories, if, if memory serves. That was the scariest day of my life. I'm afraid of heights. Uh, really? I used to have to go up the construction elevator on the side of this building before they put any skin on it and cross over the little metal bridge to get over to the slab edge, oh. Oh, uh, oh, oh. you know, at a half a mile in the air. So I can check out the site with the wind blowing and, and uh, yeah, I still have nightmares of, of, of those experiences. Uh, but it, but it's a, that was an incredible project, incredible innovations. I, I would say the innovations on that project had more to do with the structural systems that were created. And but on the engineering side, there, there were there were challenges that came up that you know. You just couldn't imagine. I mean, having to pump water a half a mile in the air, you, you you have to come up with strategies that haven't been used before. You know, you think and about the summers uh, in the summers in Dubai, your temperature could be averaged between 105 and 120 degrees, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny. You drive around town; they have these outdoor thermometers, and they always say 49 degrees Celsius. And the reason they always say 49 is because if they actually said 50, the government would require people to shut down their businesses. They can't force you to work in 50 degree Celsius. Season. What does that translate to in, in Fahrenheit? You know, offhand? Uh, I forget. I want to say it's like 125 degrees oh. plus or minus. Oh. Yeah. And it's not just not just the heat, but it's right on the Persian Gulf. So it's extremely humid. So between the, the high wind speeds, the sand, the salt, the dust storms, the incredible humidity. It is one of the more difficult places on the, the planet to, to, to build a building. So, and then we put the biggest building there. <laughs> yeah, not only that, but Dubai has, that's not the only huge building there. There must be, it's, it's like yeah. two New York cities there almost in, in structure. Yeah, in my, in my time at SOM, I think we've I've worked on maybe six or seven tall buildings just in the city of Dubai alone. So yeah, so we, we were working on a, a huge uh, master plan. If you've ever been to Dubai, the main drag okay. through the city is, is called 
Sheikh Zayed Road. That was, I would say, the most famous boulevard in, in Dubai. And we were working on a, a project that was going to essentially take that whole zone and double the size of it. And and we were well into the design. I think we were, we were adding you know, maybe 80 million square feet of new buildings. And in the middle of the planning stage, the whole project went on hold. The city went in default. All work stopped. All Almost all the contractors working in the city drove their cars to the airport, left the, the keys on the seat and got on an airplane and got out of town. Wow. It took, it took years for them to, to start to recover. So, so there's the rise and fall of, of Dubai we, we lived through. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So you did that and then... Then you went and started your own firm. What now? Talk about that evolution. At SOM, at one time, the chairman of the firm was a gentleman by the name of Adrian Smith, quite a famous architect in his own right. He, he was the architect for the Burj Khalifa. He, he designed projects like the Trump Tower in Chicago and Rose Wharf up in Boston. If you're familiar mm-hmm. with that. He, and if, if you ever take the river cruise through Chicago. And, I have. And, you know, they, they bring up his name at least a half a dozen times during during that trip. Uh, but in any event, it was, I think I can't remember if it was 2009 or 2010, but, but in any event, he reached the age of 65, and that's when you're supposed to retire uh, from SOM. He wasn't ready to retire. I would say it was not a friendly separation. He ended up opening up his uh, own firm in Chicago taking one of the lead designers, the designer for that Pearl River Tower project that we were talking about. The lead designer was a gentleman by the name of Gordon Gill. So him and Gordon started their own firm in Chicago, and they called it ASGG, Adrian Smith Gordon Gill Architects. Mm-hmm. And over the course of about a year, I think probably hired well over 100 architects away from that so to go to work for their firm. So it was this big mix-up. <laughs> the, reshuffle uh, in the city mm-hmm. and i was kind of right in the middle of it uh, because i was working uh, so much with gordon and adrian i decided i, I just didn't want to be i didn't want to be in the middle of it and i was also growing a little weary about this working for an ae firm thing i was reminiscing about the good old days in the <laughs> mep business so so my friend and partner, I should mention his name Kevin Cahill. Kevin and I have been working together for more than 20 years. We worked together at Vandewile. He joined me at SOM. When I left SOM, this new company, he joined me there, and and we work together still today. Uh, hopefully, I'll be able to work with him through the rest of my career. He's a, a great guy. He is my opposite. I'm the pessimist. I mean, I'm the optimist. He's the pessimist. I'm the big picture guy. He's the detail guy. So we, we've had a great, together, we've been able to accomplish some, some great things over the years. But in any event, when we were... Lost track of my my train of thought, but when we were there, we we said, "Hey, let's let's start let's start a new company." And Adrian Smith said, "You know, if you start a new company, I can't I can't hire you if you work for SOM, but if you had your own MVP firm, I could give you all my work." And I said, "Well, that would be great." <laughs> and we we started putting a business model together where we could support Adrian and Gordon and all the other architectural firms in Chicago and. Uh, and we'd be getting back into the MEP business, continue to be able to work on these big international projects. It was going to be great, uh, but I made a mistake uh, in that process. And that is I accepted a, a situation where Adrian was uh, an owner in my MEP organization. 
Uh-huh. And the idea he was going to be a silent owner. But the firm was successful right off the bat. I think he had a hard time with a successful firm that he was owner not talking about it. So he told everybody about it. And when he did that, no other architectural firm in Chicago wanted to, to work with him. So he ended up being essentially the de facto engineering arm of this one architectural firm. And at the end of the day, that just it didn't, you know, we, we did some great projects together in Mexico City and in China and in the Middle East, but but that wasn't going to grow. It, it didn't have a long future to it. So so I was uh, an owner there and, and the ownership group contracted me uh, to be the president for three years. And at the end of three years, we mutually decided to not continue that uh, relationship. And then again, my partner, Kevin and I, we said, okay, what's next? <laughs> and I had tried for years to convince Kevin to bring his family to Chicago, but they love it here in DC. They refused. So he would fly to Chicago on a Monday morning, work four days out of a hotel, and then fly back to DC every week for years. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that was that was getting a little bit old for him. So when we had an opportunity to yet again start over, we said, well, let's not do that. I'll I'll just move back to DC and We'll hang a shingle and we'll call it Roger and Kevin Engineering. And then we'll be back in business in, in DC. Uh-huh. So that was that was in early 2013. We, we made okay. that decision. So 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 we got back to DC. We started doing just that, putting together a business plan to build a new engineering firm. We made contact with an electrical engineer by the name of Jim Good. And uh, we had worked with Jim at Vanderweil many years ago. And we talked to Jim about what he was up to. And he said he had another thing in the works. He said there was this MEP company at Portland, Oregon called Interface Engineering. Almost all their work was in the Pacific Northwest, but they did a lot of work for the State Department on embassies. They were flying back and forth from Portland to D.C. all the time. And it was uh, getting a little bit old for them. So they decided they wanted to have a, a Washington, D.C. presence. That prompted Kevin and I to start researching this group. And when we looked into it, we said, hey, this is kind of an interesting group of, of folks. You know, they'd been in business you know, since 1969. They were known for sustainability. The projects they had worked on were small and medium-sized projects for the most part. But they had a great reputation up and down the West Coast. So Kevin and I, we decided to fly out uh, to Portland, Oregon, and we met with the leadership. And again, similar conversation to years before. It's like, hey, you know, we're in D.C. You want to have an office there. We're there. We have we have clients. We have a network. We have engineers that want to work with us. We didn't have a whole lot of capital at that time. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's where where uh, Interface was able to come in. But yeah, we decided this this would be a combination. You know, they brought to the table uh, a very stable firm working on these West Coast projects for decades. Kevin and I, we, we brought perhaps the larger scale international projects and East Coast experience. And it was, it was just a good fit. After about two hours of talking, we said, all right, let's just do it, you know? And a week later, we opened up Interface Engineering, Washington, D.C., in March of 2013. And ever since, we've been living the dream. (laughs) (laughs) 
So Kevin and I are the two principals of the office. We run the office. And then I wear a, a separate hat of the, the firm is run by, the overall firm is run by a four-person executive committee that we call our managing principals group. It's made up of myself and, and three other individuals. We don't have a president. It's, it's just the four of us that manage the day-to-day operations of the firm. Uh, what are the advantages of having multiple offices? Is it just ha- having boots on the ground in the markets that you want to work in or, you know, SOM was a central, you know, centrally operated and didn't have, well, I guess they had a few branch offices here and there, but I mean, what, what's the rationale doing that with in an engineering practice to have multiple offices like that? Well, you know, I, I think there's a couple of things, you know, the, one of the things I really love about this business is, is it's really still about the people. It's about relationships. Right. And, you know, it doesn't matter how many, super tall buildings you've worked on in your career or you know when when you when you have a friend uh, and a client you know and they're looking out for you you have an opportunity to do some business with them so you cannot never underestimate the power of the, the person-to-person relationship and that's a local thing that's not a national long distance thing but i think even beyond that in the world of engineering there's a lot of idiosyncrasies in engineering when it comes to doing work in you know, Baltimore versus DC or DC versus Arlington County or Arlington County versus Alexandria County. And, you know, and, you know, it's, it's not that an engineer couldn't come from a faraway place and learn those things, but there would be a learning curve that they would need to go through. And it's not just the, it's not just the jurisdictional requirements. It's again, the relationships that know who to call down at the local permit office to Right. To figure out what's going to fly and what's not going to fly. You know, these 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 are all things that a large national firm just would have a hard time addressing. So, so our firm we try to do both at the same time. We're a large national firm, but at the same time we've we've got these outposts, you know, that uh, have the ability to hire people locally and to build those local relationships and build those, you know, that that you know that experience and 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 knowledge. Uh, at the same time, we have the capability to pick up and go and do a large project in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, or a Net Zero Energy Headquarters building for the, you know, for the uh, World Bank in, in Dakar, Senegal. You know, so we can do both. We can be, we can be national. We can be international. We can be local. We we can move between those those categories. What does Interface do that other? MEP firms. I mean, when you're competing for a job, how do you how do you differentiate yourself? Well, a lot of it does come down to the innovation. You know, we, we talked about sustainability. Interface designed the very first net zero energy K through twelve school in the United States, the first net zero energy library in the United States, the first net zero energy archival storage facility, the first net zero energy U.S. border crossing at San Ysidro and down in, near California. You know. Here in DC, we've kind of followed suit with the first net zero energy renovation in the in the Mid Atlantic, and and then internationally, you know, we're doing the first first net zero energy office building, first net zero energy building in the continent of Africa. You know, so to do these things, you know, it it, it does require you to just go beyond you know the standards that that you know all MEP firms have their standards. If you rely on your standards, you're never moving forward. You have to, you have to adapt them, advance them, 
and include technologies, systems, strategies, measures that, that you've never done before. It takes it takes a little bit of I don't know what it takes. You cannot be risk averse and, and do some of the things that we're doing. We have to take some risks, some chances to be able. Do you to have do an R and D unit within internally, or does it just each person comes up with their own ideas and just kind of collaborates with you among the group? It's not a formal one. We we have what we call exchanges. So within each discipline, there will be monthly exchanges where. Someone will, will get on the line. It's all virtual now, but we'll say, okay, I've done something here that I think is really cool and different. And I'm going to spend the next two hours telling you about it. And people ask questions. They, you know, fire darts at it, try to poke holes in the idea. And, sure. You know, and, and if it stands uh, stands up through a meeting like that, it's probably a pretty damn good idea. But we, we have those exchanges between disciplines and, and across disciplines all the time. So, That's great. That's awesome. So with the recent and growing thrust towards ESG in the workplace and building envelopes, has it had any impact on your design work and on your business operations? I assume it has, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So the envelope is just another system, right? <laughs> Within the building, all the systems have to work together. You know, I, I think uh, a lot of the clients that we're working with, we, we share a lot of Sort of common goals with respect to sustainability and building performance. I think I can say it now. I couldn't even say it a week ago, but we're we are the engineers designing uh, the new Under Armour headquarters up in Baltimore. Oh, um, cool! Yeah, and it's an interesting client, and it's all about performance, right? Human performance, building performance. At some point in time, um, those two things come together. And so I equate it sometimes to what we saw happening in the automobile industry, you know, 10, 15 years ago. You'd always see these commercials with ads of cars driving by and they'd be showing off the, you know, the shape of the car or the color of the car, or, you know, and that has largely gone away. Automobile commercials now are about the driver's experience, you know, and what it's like to be in, in the cabin. What do you see and what do you feel? And and how ergonomically appropriate you know, the controls are. And, and I'm seeing a similar thing happen with buildings. You know, you, you might experience the shape of a building as you're driving to work once a day, but all day long, you're in that building. So how, how are you interacting with that building? You know, what, what, what's the, you know, what, what's the comfort like? And when I say comfort, I don't just mean what temperature it is. You know, you have thermal comfort, you have visual comfort, you have acoustical comfort, you have mean radiant temperature, you have, you know, there are so many different things that go into the question of, are you comfortable? And we have the ability through our designs to, to really fine tune those things to optimize the human performance of an individual living or working within that environment. And all the systems come into play. It's not just an MEP thing, you know, it's, you know, and, and this is, this is one of the beautiful things that I think are happening in the business. So we used to work in these silos, the architect does the envelope, you know, the engineer does the mechanical systems. Now it's all colliding. The, the, the ceiling systems are the cooling systems. The floor systems are the air delivery systems. The structural systems are, you know, the temperature control. So, I mean, it's, it's all kind of coming together. It's going to become more and more difficult to tag a portion of the building as being one thing or another. There, so you have to early on in a design, you have to work really closely with the architect 
then in the whole in their design process because what you're designing and they're designing has to coalesce pretty well it sounds yeah, like a, a, absolutely absolutely you know i'm going to jump back a little bit to my first day at som my first day at som one of the partners came to me and he had a fully built model wooden model built of one of his buildings and he put it on my desk and he said i understand you're the sustainability guy i got a meeting tomorrow morning can you give me a story about this building and how sustainable it is? And I said, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, you're, you're six months too late. You know, mm-hmm. I said, next project, come back to me when you're you know, a week into it and we'll have, right. we'll have a discussion. You know, the, you know, we, we, it sounds a little bit self-serving, but we, we always do try to convey to our, our clients that, you know, the earlier we can get on or the, you know, the, the more of a difference that you know, we, we feel we can make. Let me go a little bit to first principles on your, your profession a little bit. So what, you know, describe the, the profession of mechanical engineering and the process a little bit, and then the wider segment of MEP, if you can, and then also build into that, what makes a real good engineer in your mind? Roger. That's a tough question. <laughs> well, for, for for those that don't understand what MEP means, it's it's a collection of of services. So within the design of any building, you have a number of disciplines that that need to come together to to collaborate, need to design together. The most famous, of course, being architecture, right? and they're the ones that that uh, get all the credit and get all the awards and get all the accolades at the end end of the project. But it does take a a village, right? <laughs> takes a village, a collection of people. And, you know, again, everything from you know, the lighting designer to the landscape architect to the elevator designer, on and on and on. We have a small collection of some of those services within MEP. And when you say MEP, it usually refers to the HVAC design, the heating systems, the cooling systems, uh, the ventilation systems. We also provide the electrical systems which are further broken down into medium voltage systems, the power that goes to outlets and the low voltage systems, you know, the, the power for your, you know, fire alarm system or your, your communication systems, plumbing, you know, the, the toilets and the sinks and the showers within the building. Uh, and then the, the fire protection systems, the sprinkler systems, the dry pipe systems you might have in a garage or Pre-action systems you might have protecting, you know, a computer space, and then the, the fire alarm you know, systems, the, the devices, the strobes, the alarms, that the enunciators that help to to protect the building. The firm also provides things like systems like commissioning services, which is a a process by which all we prove out that all these systems are all communicating and acting and performing together in unison. But yeah, so it's essentially all the different disciplines that that come together. We have about six or seven of those that we've bundled together and we call it MEP and and we offer those to the projects. So in each individual project, when we're talking to a client, we go through our whole list of services we provide and they, they tell us which ones they need, which ones they don't. Every project is different. So there's no one singular set of services that we provide as as we move from, from project to project. So uh, do you do, let me go from your systems into the structure of the building and where the interface is. So normally you insulate all your 
product, all your pipes and things, do you provide the insulation or does the structural engineer do that? Is that your job or is that theirs typically? Well, um, a structural engineer might um, provide not insulation, but fireproofing, like a spray on the structure. That might be one thing. An architect might provide a an insulating blanket or a or a solid piece of insulation on an exterior wall, and we may provide insulation on a tank or a pipe or a or a pump. So this, so I guess it depends. So everybody has their own systems, you know, and, and their own protection, you know, for those systems. But 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 generally, the way that I describe it is, you know, the, the structural engineer is really creating the framework that holds the building up. That's the skeleton of the body. Right. The architect is is providing the skin, the appearance, everything outward facing that you see at the base building design, and inward facing for the interior design. The MEP systems are really, in general, all the things that move. You know, so if you were if you were doing, if you were comparing it to the human body, you know, where the blood circulation system, where, where the air, you know, where, where the lungs, where the, you know, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. And anything, if it moves, then it's, it's probably in our. You're the digestive tract too. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, literally all, all the way to the, all the way to the washroom, right? <laughs> and, and, and out the building. <laughs> Yeah, so so architectural and structural systems are referred to as static systems, and the MEP systems are referred to as dynamic systems. We take care of the dynamic systems. Interesting. So I actually cited a quote in my notes to you, and I don't know if you had a chance to read it, um, about architecture by uh, Chamath, who's the founder of a company called uh, Social did you have a chance to read that? Uh, I skipped through it. I've got it in. I've got it in front of me okay. right now. I can read it quickly. It says, "I think that architecture will unfortunately have a, a lot less value in the future because of climate change." Now, what does that mean? Well, for example, if you look at some of the most progressive countries in the world, Europe on 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 the climate issue, you look and again start to go back to first principles. Where where is the carbon emitted? Where are the greenhouse gases emitted? Well, it's overwhelmingly in cities. Then you start to look at what are some of the things we could do to electrify or decarbonize them. One thing you could get to is to have incredibly beautiful architecture, but it's completely dated. The amount of carbon that these heating systems, these water systems generate, getting stuff into these is very intricate. Beautiful. You walk by these piazzas, you think, God, these things have been around for 500 years. On the one hand, you're like, it's amazing. But on the other hand, you're like, this is going to be really tough for the city of Paris or Milan or Amsterdam to defend historic architecture in the face of also wanting to be carbon neutral. I think in the United States, it's also going to have some direct implications as well. So if architecturally, we unfortunately have to replace some of this old, beautiful stuff with more simple, modern stuff, we'll have a more utilitarian landscape. What's your reaction to that, Roger? Um. I think I understand what he's saying. I, I think it, it's important that we not try to apply a uniform set of principles, though, over every location, over every city, over every building. You know, you got a, you know, a, a, a beautiful cathedral in a city. You know, you're not going to touch it. 
you know, you know, it's it 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 has some of these structures have great significance to human society, and that go beyond whatever their potential individual building carbon footprint might be. So I, I think what the important thing is is to focus on changes that are that are meaningful, and and and, and here's what I mean by that. When we when we designed this American Geophysical Union building in DC, it's a net zero energy building, and we're very proud of it. At the end of the day, it's one building. You know how many buildings are there in Washington DC? Hundreds. You know if if there were the, if the difference between having a standard building versus a net zero energy building on that site, how much have you moved the energy needle in the city? And it is. It's not, you know, it doesn't move, right? And <laughs> it's 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 uh, inconsequential in terms of the difference that it makes, unless somehow uh, the building is designed in such a way where it it creates a message and creates a learning opportunity and inspires others, you know, the next generation of kind of architects and engineers to try to do the same or try to improve upon it and. And, and and that's when you start to move the needle. So even on a project like that, as proud as I am about the engineering and the ducts and the pipes and the equipment that's in the building, that's not the real story in a building like that. The real story is, does it have the ability to inspire designers or not? That's the real measure, I think, of projects. I'll give another example. I thought this was quite interesting. I saw a presentation uh, a couple of years back from the head of uh, Dominion Power in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And, and he was taking a lot of heat at the time because they were talking about building another power plant to you know feed into their system and, and uh, people interested in green planet sustainability and don't want another power plant. So they said, why are you doing this? So he said, he said, I want to ask a few questions. He says, I said, everybody in the crowd, I want you to raise your hand if you have an Energy Star refrigerator in your kitchen. And everybody's hand shot up very proudly. Right? <laughs> and then he asked the question, he says, what did you do with the other one that you took out? Did you stick it in your garage? You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so have you, what, what have you done, you know, to your house in terms of your performance of your house? He says, his next question was, raise your hand if you've got an iPhone or a Samsung phone in your pocket, right? Everybody's hand goes up. He says, he says, do you realize what percentage of the electricity generated for the state of Virginia goes to data centers? And I, I don't even honestly don't remember the exact percentage, but it, it is substantial. And it's something that did not exist, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And it's something that we don't see unless you drive out by Dulles Airport or out that way. It's not tangible. It's 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 in the cloud. The cloud is a beautiful, fluffy thing. Well, no, it's not. It is a tremendous amount of energy, energy consumption and carbon emission that is invisible because we call it the cloud. You know, and, and no one takes responsibility for that you know nobody has any problems buying the the next iphone and more memory and buying two tetrabytes of storage for their you know on their computer to save all their old photos but they're not necessarily understanding what they're really doing because so are you working on are you working on a solution for data centers as far as uh bringing them to net zero 
it's on the list. <laughs> it's on the list. But I, I, think, I think my message, and I'm, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but my, my message is, you know, we, we need to focus on big things that make a difference. You know, I was like, don't don't beat up on the, trying to find a way to reduce the energy consumption of the National Cathedral. Leave it alone. <laughs> you know, <laughs> leave it alone. Focus on something that's really going to make a difference. You know? And that's about priorities. Yeah. Well, I guess the question is the thoughtfulness going forward and then how you can make up for what you have to offset based on what's there existing that is worth retaining from a human mm-hmm. perspective, yeah. potentially. That may be the yeah. long-term solution. Yeah. So, I mean, so our mutual friend, John Lowe, shared with me some, because he worked with you for many years at, at a couple of different firms, yes. shared with me some interesting projects that you worked on over the years. You designed a system where return air was scrubbed through a system lined with plants to absorb CO2 and replenished some of them with with, with oxygen. Yeah, so this, this has been a focus of ours uh, for probably the last uh, seven or eight years now. You know, as we're finding ways to design these buildings to be more and more energy efficient, the walls are better, the windows are better, you know, the mechanical systems are more efficient, the lighting efficient, the systems are more efficient. All these things are getting smaller and smaller. But when it comes to ventilation air, outside air that you bring in, there, we have what we have. We have our Washington, D.C., relatively hot, humid air in the summertime. When you bring that air into a building and you need to cool it down and dehumidify, take the moisture out of it, there's a lot of energy required uh, for that process. But the code requires you to bring in that amount of fresh air. But there's a little, there's a little footnote in the code that says you need to bring in fresh air to the building unless you have an engineered system that can provide air of equal or better quality. We said, okay, so how do we how do we create air that's better than outside air? <laughs> so in, I mentioned it before this project, the American Geophysical Union building. Yes, let's get into that. We uh, we designed uh, a system that we call our HiFi wall, and HiFi is an acronym that stands for hydroponic phytoremediation. And what it does is the air that is delivered to a space. Rather than going back through a grill in the wall to, to ductwork to a mechanical system, is forced through a hydroponic system of plants and roots and leaves that are essentially make up the, the quarter walls. And when the air uh, passes through the system, it's literally forced through the roots of the plants. And it's, a, it's an incredible filter. It removes a lot of the volatile organic uh, compounds, the VOCs. It it absorbs a lot of the CO2 and it helps to oxygenate the air. So it's improving the quality of the air as it's passing through the system. So this air then goes vertically up through the building back to these air handling units that we have on the roof. But these are very smart units. They're able to take air from the outside directly or take air back from the system. And we measure 17 different contaminants on the return air side and on the outside air side. So the system is literally constantly testing the quality of air inside versus outside. And there are certainly times of the day, you know, on Florida Avenue and traffic is backed up and the cars are pumping out a lot of carbon monoxide where the system is saying, hey, you know, this air inside is actually better. So it uses that air instead, which again is is perfectly... uh, acceptable by code but for every 
cubic foot of air that you use from the inside or from the outside, there's a substantial amount of energy you've saved. So I think this is really, I mean, this is what they do in NASA, right? This is what they're planning for the trips to Mars. You know, they can't carry enough oxygen tanks to provide clean air for astronauts that are going to be on a two or three year journey. So they need plants. They need hydroponics to be that. How do hydroponics survive in a, in a, you know, zero atmosphere environment, I guess that's not an easy thing, is it? Yeah, no, that, that's a question for a bigger brain than, than me. <laughs> <laughs> but a few years ago, we, we, we did have an interesting opportunity. I went down to the Johnson Space Center down in Houston for, for NASA, and we signed a contract with them. And I forgot exactly what we call the contract. But essentially, it was a bartering agreement. It was a contract where we agreed not to exchange any money. However, we would exchange services. They would work with us on some specific issues we were having, and, and we would do the same. What we needed from them were their supercomputers. We were doing a lot of what we called a parametric modeling of, of cities. Essentially, imagine it like doing an energy model, but instead of for a building for an entire an entire city or an entire neighborhood or an entire district, it took a tremendous amount of computing power. We didn't have it. They had it. So they provided us with the computing power. In exchange, they had some of these pet projects that they wanted some engineering insight. And one of them was was actually working on this notion of, of, of hydroponics and creating a sustainable environment uh, in space. So we, we, we have had those conversations with NASA, gave them input. I have no idea if they're going to use it or not. But <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. So can we expound now a little bit on the, the AGU building here in Washington on Florida yes. Avenue? Yes, Talk please. a little bit about those uh, systems and what you did there and what, what the whole process was when you looked at the building. and. I interviewed Yolanda Cole of Hickok Cole, mm-hmm. and so she talked about the design of the project, right. and she actually talked a little bit about some of the systems as well, but I'd rather have you get into the systems a little bit and some of the more innovative things that you've done there that are uh, worth discussing, and then and then also the practical aspects of those systems. Uh, some may not be practical yet. But it's early on, and maybe the, the technologies will evolve to the point where they will be practical. But right. um, talk about some of the innovations that are you think are going to be cutting edge in the future for us. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, just a little bit of background on the project. Uh, the uh, AGU, they call it an uh, acronym for the American Geophysical Union, is an association uh, made up largely of Earth and space scientists uh, from around the world. I, I want to from memory, I think they have about 80,000 members worldwide. So in DC, they have their headquarters building and most of their administrative functions take place within that building. They have been located on uh, 2000 Florida Avenue for, I think probably the, I don't remember what year they, they, they first moved in there, but it's been a long time. They were a long time in the same building at that site. They, the building got to the point where the mechanical systems had reached the end of their useful life, and they were looking at the notion of having to do a, essentially a mechanical system replacement. And uh, the president of AGU at that time was a woman by the name of Chris McEntee, amazing woman. And she had a, she had a lot of knowledge about the field of architecture. I think at one time she was actually the president of AIA. <laughs> 
But uh, she said, "Hey, why? Why are we? If we're if we're going to spend this much money, if we're going to open up the building, let's let's do something meaningful." And she started asking questions about: Is it really possible to take an existing building and retrofit it into a net zero energy condition? And and they went out and they hired uh, Hickok Cole as the architect. Separately, they hired us as the MEP engineer. And it was it was kind of interesting. On so many projects, we're trying to pitch these ideas to our to our our building owners and developers. Hey, you should really do this, and it's there's good things that would come of it. In this case, it was it was exactly the opposite. This is what they were going to do. They wanted to do this. They just needed to find people that could get it done. Right. So so we came in and we presented and we said, okay, well, here's our initial thoughts. Here's our strategies. Here's our approach. Uh, and we developed a methodology of, of, of how to do that. And we created a, a four-step process. We called it uh, reduction, reclamation, absorption, and generation. So if you go into the building right now, you'll see these signs all over the place that have these, these four, four steps to, uh, to get to net zero energy. So the idea is the first thing that we do is we look at the building and we look at all the opportunity to reduce the building's appetite for consumption whether that be water or electricity or, or what have you. After we've done that, we then look at a whole other list of strategies and measures to reclaim energy. So if energy is in the building, we don't let it uh, back out again. The third thing we did, we called absorption. And this is really fascinating. It's like, let's look outside the building. Let's look around the neighborhood. Are there any energy forces near us that we can grab onto and, and bring into play? And that one was a little bit more abstract. And then lastly, after we've done those first three things and we have the lowest possible, what they call EUI, energy use intensity, then what are the opportunities on the building and on the site to produce energy you know, through uh, renewable energy sources, you know, wind or solar, or solar heating and, and the like. So we came up with hundreds of potential strategies that could be used. And then had a long workshop type process where we went through each and every one of them and sifted through them. One thing that AGU said is they didn't want to be a guinea pig. They were not interested in a technology that had never been done before. So we asked for clarification. We said, does it have to have ever been done before in the United States? If we can find someplace on the planet where it's been done before, will you consider it? And they said, yes. So that, that became important. Oh, that'll be important later in my, my story here. <laughs> so in any event, we we went through this, we we cut this overall list down and we came up with a, a list of the strategies, a bundle of strategies from each of these four categories where working together in concert, we believed we could achieve uh, net zero energy or better. And some of the systems that made the cut included that hydroponic phytoremediation system I talked about before. It included a rainwater capture and reuse system where all the flushing water, all the irrigation water, all the water used to wash down photovoltaic cells that is all reclaimed rainwater. It is the country's largest digital electricity installation. And what we mean there is that the building runs off of DC power, not AC power. So all of the lights in the building are LED, but they're DC LED. All the workstations are, are DC powered within the open office space. Is that a this first? Is, Have you done that anywhere else? DC powered buildings? 
We found one small installation in DC, I'm sorry, in Detroit, but it is the largest such installation in the United States. And I, and I have not found one outside of the United States. So it was a, it was a real innovation. And the advantages again for doing that? So it's one of the problems that other high-performing buildings have. You know, everybody says, oh, that's zero energy. You need to have a PV array. And it is true you need a, a renewable energy production source, to, generally speaking, to get to net zero energy. But, but photovoltaic panels generate direct current power. Buildings are generally designed based on an AC source. They are plugging equipment into the walls and lighting right. systems. When you, you, can, you, can, you can convert DC power to AC power, but there's losses. There's heat right. losses, there's power losses. Right. And that's unfortunate. <laughs> so we said, well, if we can make the building DC, then we don't have to go through that transformation and we can not have to experience those losses and we'll make the building that much more efficient. And so that yeah, that's exactly what we did. So right now, the primary source of power is, is DC and only at night or on a cloudy day does the city grid come in and take over and provide the the power to to those elements. So if you're working at your desk in that building, you have to have a little mini com- converter then for your to plug in your things that you're working on or with. Yeah. I would say it's it's the opposite. I mean, if you own a laptop, John. Yes, I do. Okay, how do you how do you plug that laptop? In? Is it a wire or is there a little brick that comes along with it that that heats up? Yeah. All right, I'm gonna off screen for a second here. So this is what I'm talking about. So here, here's here's my plug for my laptop. Sure. So okay. At yep. one end, it, you have AC power. Then you have this thing that converts it to DC, and then ah. DC power goes into your laptop. Oh, okay. Well, you have to do that because the laptops want DC power. The you know the buildings are providing. Lock I have is right into the plug. Yeah. 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 Okay. So so these so these so these devices right here, if you've ever had one plugged in for a while and you grab onto it, they're hot. They can get, they're hot. That's lost energy. And that energy, that lost energy is now going into the space, making it warmer. And now your air conditioning system needs to work harder to mm-hmm. offset that additional heat that's being produced. We essentially don't need this anymore uh, for that building. Got it. You know, the building yeah. produces DC power, the laptops use DC power. It's a direct one through. So we're actually eliminating. Uh, equipment that we would otherwise use. So, so uh, yeah, so it's, a, it's an innovation. I think uh, the lighting system proved out to be a pretty easy thing to do. The, the equipment was readily available. The workstations and the laptops were a little bit trickier because uh, we were designing this before the USB-C ports on laptops, which we had some compatibility issue between certain brands of laptops in our, our system. But now that Everybody has moved to USB-C. That problem has resolved itself. So I, I, I see that as being something we're going to see more and more of in the future as uh, DC-powered buildings, particularly now that we're you know seeing more net zero energy projects, more you know, PV systems, more electrical vehicle charging systems. You know, we're, we're, we're moving away from from AC to to direct current. So one other yeah, so that system a, that. I'd love you to talk about, and then we'll move on. Is the the heat transfer system that you'd have in the from the sewer sewage the DC sewage uh, yeah. system that was European based, I believe. 
Yeah, so that is definitely an innovation that had never been done before in the United States. But again, based on AGU's criteria, we had to find a, a built example. I think we found one in Germany and one in Switzerland. So I think we've at a much smaller scale, we found two in the world. Actually, took a, a trip to Europe to, to bring the client with us to, to go look at it together, get them uh, comfortable with it. But this comes back to that four steps that I talked about, the absorption strategy and looking at energy around the building. Our original design concept to get to then zero required us to go into the basement and drill vertical boreholes and put in a geothermal system under the building. Without that, we figured we were not going to be able to hit that net zero mark. We ran into two major problems. One is that we'd have to go into an existing parking structure and, and drill, and it was very low floor-to-floor height, and we could not find anybody in the world that manufactured a drill rig that could stand up and drill in that short of, 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 of a distance. So that was problem number one. Problem number two, we also learned that prior to AGU's building being built, that site was the site of a, a gas station. So we, even if we could drill, we were going to be running into some very bad contaminated soil conditions. Right. So that was a major, major setback to the design team. And it brought us off of net zero and we thought we were sunk. We, we kept looking around and we came up with this idea. We were looking at a, a civil engineering plan and we noticed that there was a combined sewer sanitary line running only about 20 feet outside the building in the middle of uh, under, you know, 30 feet down underneath Florida Avenue. Now, when I tell the story, people think of a sewer pipe. This is not a sewer pipe. This is a pre-World War One piece of city infrastructure made of brick. It's a, an egg-shaped structure made of brick that was designed in the late 1800s to, to carry sewer water through the, the streets. It was Washington, D.C.'s first municipal sanitary system. It was sanitary sewer, not, uh, not uh, storm sewer. Then. Well, it changes depending on where you are in the city. This particular line was both storm and sanitary. Both. Okay. That's yeah, a combined flow system. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, you know, we figured that water is probably going to be cool. We might have sufficient flows to essentially make that our geothermal system. And we actually referred to it as urban geothermal. But we needed a whole lot more data, you know, so we needed to get permission by DC Water to go down there and have someone go inside the system and and put the measuring equipment and we set up equipment to take measurements every 15 minutes for the better part of the year, looking at the water temperature, you know, the the height of the water, the velocity of the water, you know, conditions when it's raining and snow melt and all of that. And we, we, we collected a lot of data of what's going on in the, in the sewer through the course of the year. And after looking at it, we said, hey, we think we've got something here. We've got enough energy in that pipe to essentially heat and cool the building. So, so that's what we've done. We, we created a system where we built a wet well directly adjacent to the sewer pipe. We poked, <laughs> poked a hole in the side of the sewer. We drained water into the side well, and we've got a system called a rock well system, which strains and pulls the solids out of that, out of that well. And then we use that very dirty, smelly water 
through a heat exchanger to create a condenser water that is used throughout the building to serve the radiant ceiling system. So it was, yeah, it had never been done before. And, and frankly, that was, it was difficult when we first went to DC water and said, Hey, can we put a hole in your world war one age, you know, city infrastructure? They, they said, no way. <laughs> but the more we talked about it, the more we kept going back at them, answering all their questions and, and going through all their concerns. And not, not only did they eventually said yes, but they actually became very excited about the idea that DC water had had some revenue problems, uh, cash flow problems and in, in recent years. And they said, well, you know, if AGU sees value in this water, maybe others will too. And maybe this is a potential revenue stream for DC water <laughs> that they've never had before. So they stopped calling it their sewer water. They started calling it their asset. <laughs> and uh, long story short, not only did they allow us to do it, it's installed. It's been set up as a demonstration type system. DC Water themselves have since built their own headquarters building and put a very similar system inside their headquarters building. And they are now looking at some rather substantial district scale installations in several neighborhoods uh, within the district. So they have gotten, they came full circle <laughs> from How where we started with them. You've measured this system's uh, effectiveness. Uh, how much has it added to? I mean, has it met the expectations you you would set or exceeded the expectations? A a absolutely, absolutely. You know, with, with any innovation, you know, there's there's going to be a, a period of time where you got to kind of work through the kinks. There were some relatively minor control issues that we had to resolve when it was first installed. You know, they had a couple of uh, places where, you know, some some smelly air was kind of sneaking up through the well. We had to find yep. where the where the hole was and, and and plug it. But but in general, I mean it's it's amazing to be able to say that uh, I mean if you think about it from a building owner perspective that your building is heated and cooled by the sewer, not by boilers, not by chillers, you know, that's that's something. There there are, you know, we, we do have a very small piece of equipment that can provide chill water in the peak of the summer or the absolute height of the winter, but for for most of the year, it's yeah, it's people flushing their toilets that are providing a comfortable environment within AGU's building. It's amazing. So that's pretty impressive. So it was a fun one. Yeah, we could go on on that building, but I I think I'd like to move on to a few other topics if we could. Sure. So, what any other design trends you see today as a result of the pandemic? And things that have happened. I mean, is there anything that the pandemic has has accentuated or accelerated in in your world? You know, with regard to design or engineering. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's all happened so fast, right? Sure. Pandemic hits. Everybody's at home. We 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 don't know how we're getting sick. Is it is it because we walked too close to someone or we touched a doorknob or? You know, there's a lot of misinformation, flat out wrong information uh, floating around about, you know, what you need to be concerned about. But one thing it did is it brought a whole lot of attention to buildings, ventilation and air circulation systems as being a potential source of contamination. And there were there were some studies that were done in China that showed that absolutely buildings, mechanical systems can pick up a virus from 
one location and transport it and make other people ill at the other end of of the system. And the data was showing that people were getting sick much more frequently indoors than outdoors. You know, which, you know, on one hand, I think drove a lot of people outside, maybe not a, a bad thing for their own health and well-being. But on the other hand, we have a lot of building owners that need to get buildings back and you know people back into their buildings, you know, whether they were you know, hotels or office buildings or, or what have you, they, they needed to get their buildings back online. So we were just inundated with questions about what can I do? You know, what, what can I do to change the building? What will it cost me? How effective will it be? What kind of guarantees, you know, come along with doing these things? You know, what works better than others? You know, we, we ended up to just to handle the volume of, of questions coming in. We had to go off for a bit and create a two-hour-long um, webinar series on the topic and then post it on our website and put it on YouTube so that when people would call up, we could say, hey, listen, watch this. If you still have any questions, call, call us back, you know, because mm-hmm. yes, uh, it, was, it, was, it was incredible there for a while. But in any event, we, we did a deep dive looking at you know, everything from increasing the efficiency of, of filters, from, you know, to from MERV 8 to MERV 13 filters. We looked at HEPA filters. We looked at you know, ultraviolet uh, germicidal irradiation, UVGI systems. We, we looked at bipolarization and ionization systems to, you know, to, to neutralize the air. That became highly controversial because of fear of ozone. Uh, I mean, we, we went through the whole gambit of, of things that you could do, what was cost effective, what was good long term, what was good, you know, short term. Did any of these things have payback? And we 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 went through all of that with our, our clients. So, what system is the most effective in your mind, or or does it depend on the scale of the project or the space that you're trying to condition, or or yeah. or or is there one system that's just kind of blows everything else away as far as its effectiveness? Well, I think the number one thing isn't so much a system as it is an operating procedure. There's an old saying in the world of MEP engineering that dilution is the solution for pollution. And it, it turns out that that's true for COVID-19 and the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. You know, if you can if you can dilute to that airflow, you can go a long way to reduce the threat of, uh, of uh, infection. You know, so we would study the inherent capabilities of mechanical systems to see what could be done to to change that balance between outdoor air and return air, you know, to 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 offer that dilution without going out of bounds of what the capability of those units were. But also acknowledging that by doing so we were probably increasing the energy consumption. So trying to find that balance between improved protection versus energy consumption. At that moment in time, uh, a lot of the owners didn't care about energy efficiency. It's like, just make the building safe. We'll worry about the energy, you know, later. But then when we get beyond there, you know, the difference between a MERV 8 and a MERV 13 filter might be the difference between, you know, 60% efficient and 90% efficient. You know, so that's a big, big difference. And a lot of air handling systems can accept that change without doing anything else. But some can't, so it has to be looked at. You know, it has to be evaluated. UVGI 
was a strategy we used a lot because not only did it have some good effectiveness on neutralizing the virus, but we could place it in a location, say, at the wet side of a coil where it could help to clean that coil. And by doing so, it actually improved the energy efficiency of the equipment, not only short-term, but long-term. So they're there. Now you start talking about payback on a, a COVID system. We ran into a bit of a buzzsaw. We, we were recommending a, something known as a needlepoint bipolarization system. But to the main company that was producing this, you know, another group filed a uh, one, one of the filter companies filed a lawsuit against them. We believe wow. it was frivolous. However, it created, you know, <clears throat> we had to pull back from it <clears throat> just because we all had to sit back and wait for these things to run through the courts and all of that. So it was a very dynamic, dynamic situation for a while. And I think as time went on, people began to realize that it's, you know, you know, you know, all else being equal, being outside is better. (laughs) And uh, and it's the proximity of one person to another that has uh, a much greater impact than uh, a lot of these other factors, whether it be building ventilation systems or, or, or touch or contact, you know, uh, I think a lot of companies were selling, you know, the sort of battery powered electric soap dispensers because nobody wanted to actually touch the soap dispenser. <laughs> well, people like, well, it doesn't seem like that's really an issue. So, <laughs> so people have gone away from getting away from a lot of the touchless devices and buildings now, thinking it's no longer a major factor. And, and maybe it isn't for this particular virus, but who knows what the, the next virus is going to be that, that comes down the uh, it comes down the road. I, I referred to an article about taste in that that I suggested in my notes. I don't know if you had a chance to look at that. I asked Yolanda about it, and her being an architect, taste is pretty important with regard to the visual aspects of a property and a, a, the exterior of a building. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, when you're thinking about the systems that you design, I guess, in essence, based on the analogy of the body, we don't really see much of what you do physically. Yours is kind of the guts of the property. Mm-hmm. So the issue of taste is probably not as important to your design strategies as it would be to an architect's, let's say, per yeah. se. But maybe you have some commentary about that that you'd like to share. Yeah, I think uh, all I would say about that is I think for, I think that is changing also, you know, and certainly for much of my career, the common belief was that if you don't see us and you don't hear us and we're not, you know, causing you some level of discomfort, we've probably done a great job, (laughs) you know, mechanical systems, you don't want to hear them rattling, you know, you don't want to be sitting in a seat with a cold draft on your neck. You don't want to have your, <laughs> you know, the no. light fixture uh, flickering over your head. You know, if those kind of things aren't happening, then the engineer must have done a good job. But but, but I do think it's changing. And again, and I think it goes back to what I was saying before. You know, you've got to start asking questions about where, where does the architectural system stop and the engineering system begin? Where does the structural engineering system stop and begin? That, that Pearl River uh, Tower example that I brought in, we turned the building's structure into an energy-producing machine. On an HU, the ceiling system, the architectural ceiling, 
is what is providing thermal comfort for the occupants. You know, this phytoremediation wall is mechanically doing something beneficial for the building, but it's also a beautiful lush green wall where there's a biophilia effect. And the irrigation system sounds like a gentle waterfall from the background, providing a, a level of quality to the environment that you wouldn't get out of most other mechanical systems. You know, so so the boundaries between the historic conventional system breakpoints are, are breaking down. And I, and I think it's it's a, a positive thing. We, I one of the things, a, yeah, one of the concepts in that article is nature and yeah. being able to bring nature into your design. And it seems to be what you just talked about as a nature orientation of yeah. bringing a natural feeling into a building. Well, one of, one, of the, one of my influences, I've, I belong to this group called the Design Futures Council for, for many decades. And it was, it was really kind of put together. It was pre-USGBC, pre-LEED. It was a think tank of, of, of how, what we can do to you know, design a better environment and be more sustainable. And mm-hmm. one of the first people I met as part of this group was a woman by the name of Janine Benyus. And Janine Benyus wrote a book called Biomimicry. And, and I, I think I have three or four copies of it still kind of hanging around my, my office here. It, it really influenced much of my design moving forward in this. And, and one of the notions from this book is that in nature, systems generally never provide just sort of one purpose. They're, they're multi-purpose systems. So, so we... You know, as as part of this performative design group that I formed, we did deep dives into different different organic and living organisms around the planet to see can we take any lesson from how this creature lives and apply it to the built environment. And we did it really a lot. We we did it a lot. And and some of the examples that I can I can go from memory in Botswana, they have these termite mounds. And these termites build these mounds of essentially of mud, and some of them can be six or eight feet tall. And then they punch these openings within this big mud cone, and these openings are created on the windward side of, of this cone. Uh, and then there's a hole at the top. And then the termites drag in these wet leaves at the base of this, and these cones create this natural stack effect where just by the sun heating up the cone, air is drawn in at the base of these mounds across these wet leaves. This is an evaporative cooling effect that takes place. And then the air exits the the top of the cone. So in the middle of the desert, where it can be 125 degrees outside, it'll be a nice, comfortable 80-something degrees inside this cone, allowing these termites to, to, to thrive. So to me, that's a, that's an excellent example of, of you know an op- engineering opportunity. So we designed a, a tall tower uh, called the DMC Tower in Seoul, Korea, a bunch of years ago, and we followed the exact same principle. It was a donut-shaped building with a big hole in the center. We took out several floors at the base of the unit. We opened up the top, and we created a condition where we had metal rods uh, hanging from a, a heliostat at the top of the building. The sun would heat up the rods, would heat up the air, it would escape at the top, and it would bring this cooler air up through the base 
and it would reduce the energy consumption of the building. Nice. We also put in wind turbines to generate power within the in this building. We were kind of as a follow-up to what we learned on our project in, in Guangzhou. So termite uh, mounds in Africa were the yeah. inspiration for this building in Seoul, Korea. A- absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. The other the other big one we looked at was the sea sponge, you know, and, and how a, a sea sponge operates. So I could I I, I could probably talk for, for three hours just on the notion of biomimetic design and applications of, you know, the the engineering systems of of natural creatures and how they can be how they can influence architecture and engineering in modern buildings. It's been a, a big a big focus of ours for years. So. Well, I was going to ask you about your design philosophy, but you just talked a, a big part of it. It sounds like that is what you just said about using nature in your in your design is a big part of your philosophy. It sounds like. Yeah, I, I call it cheating, right? <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is if you think about any engineer, any architecture, architectural professional, and how, how do you separate the good ones from the bad ones? And, and quite often, it's uh, the, the smartest ones, the most experienced engineers got there by uh, measured by the number of mistakes that they've made. You know, if you don't make mistakes, you're never learning, right? No. The, the, the problem is the human life is relatively short, you know, 80 to 100 years if you're lucky, right? There's only so many mistakes that you can make in such a short period of time. However, Mother Nature has had millions of years to test and make mistakes and learn and adapt and grow. And, and it's that iterative process of design that leads to extremely high performing outcomes. So rather than trying to figure out how to make that many mistakes in a short human life, why not look at mother nature where uh, you have thousands and thousands of iterations that have taken place over generations and learn from that. Saves a lot of time. It's cheating. It's it's jumping ahead. (laughs) Well, Leonardo da Vinci did it and all the great minds and creative you know, they got inspiration from somewhere. I mean, look at Darwin, yeah. all the famous scientists. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mother Nature is an incredible engineer. And in particularly when you look at the microscopic level, you know, the, you know, you mentioned a sea sponge. Uh, a sea sponge, if you were to look at the center of it, has these hair-like filaments called uh, flagellum. And they, and they flap back and forth and they move water from the bottom of the sea sponge up. And if you look at the efficiency of that versus a, a modern pump, you know, in, in a building, it is a thousand times more efficient than the best pump you could buy on the market. You know, so it raises the question, it's like, how can you simulate that kind of movement of, of water in a mechanical device? No one's done it yet, but if you could, you'd really have, you know, you really have something. You know, well, it so. took us, what? 10,000 years or 8,000 years to learn how to fly yeah, in, yeah, you know, an airplane. So it shouldn't take too long for us to figure that out too, it would seem to me. Yeah. So. So, so back to the sea sponge, just one more thought. These flagellum, they have these, these uh, a lot of these sponges have spikes on them. Mm-hmm. And if you were to take one of the spikes and you were to cut the tip off, what yeah. you would see is a very small organic filament. And what it does is these sea sponges generally sit in rather shallow water. 
So when the sunlight penetrates the water, it hits the end of this filament and that light is carried inside the sea sponge. So that you actually have light within the sea sponge, which allows plankton to grow, which allows other creatures will move in and, 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 and you know, create a habitat inside the sea sponge. They cut open a sea sponge in the Gulf of Mexico once they found 10,000 different species living inside a sea sponge. So you create that to a building. Here is a, a, a building that is naturally lit with thousands of, of, of occupants that both that survive and are fed through a, a natural photo, photosynthesis, not photosynthesis, but a, 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 a light transfer process using light filaments and fiber optics, essentially, to, to allow light to happen, allow life to happen inside. You know, so why can't buildings be made of masonry that have organic filaments where if you walked into a building and all the, the, the electric lights were off, the building is still lit through the external skin. Why not? Wow. You know, I mean, it, 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 you start asking questions it's like, but it can happen here. Then why can't we do it in a building? Right? So that's just a fascinating piece of, of, of the whole topic of biomimicry. Yeah, it's yeah. first principles uh, questions that people ask, which you got to keep asking. You know, look yeah. at the, you know, get get to the why and the why why. Keep asking that question, and how yeah, can yeah. this happen? You know, it's yeah, great. How, yeah. How, how do they do it? Can it be replicated? And then the further you go, again, I just I just mentioned two creatures. There's billions of them that could be studied and and teach us lessons. And exactly. I wish I, I I wish I had a team of microbiologists that <laughs> sit around all day and kind of feed me data. Uh, the whole nanotechnology field is fascinating too. What with materials, with all kinds of materials, and and then the AI piece to that is in robotics at the micro mm -hmm. level. I mean then then there's almost nothing you can not do. Yeah. <laughs> it's just amazing. Uh, so so let's go to your business for a minute. Looking at your business, how, how do you look at new opportunities, Roger? Is it just based on your reputation? You just get the phone call or do you actually go seek opportunities to work on things? It's it's it's, it's a little bit of everything. I, I think our office, you know, has has a good reputation. Our firm has a good reputation. When I ask other people how they think of our firm, you know, you know, some of the common answers do have to do with the level of creativity and innovation we, we bring to the table, you know, that I think MEP engineers have a reputation of not necessarily kind of thinking outside the box and wait for the architecture to evolve to a particular point, and then they run in and add their ducts and pipes, you know, so so architects like that. They, they, they Most architects I know love to collaborate. They love to roll up their sleeves. They love to explore ideas. And they love to to do it with you know with you know other disciplines and uh, like ours. So so that that helps us to get work. I think the size, uh, I think the the types, size, scale of, of the projects that we're doing here on the East Coast, I think you know draws people to to our group. But at the same time, we get a lot of kind of RFPs that come in that were sent to three other engineers, and we get a you know, dust off our, our best resumes and put a yep. formal package together. And, yep. and if we're not competitive on the fee, you know, there it doesn't is. matter how pretty the pictures are, you're not going to get the job unless you're within Business. a particular threshold. 
I would say it is difficult for us to be the low bidder on projects. That that's generally not something that we that that happens to us. You know, so there's a lot of work that you know we we just don't have an opportunity to see. Yeah, well, you don't necessarily want to do it on that basis. You'd rather be special and do special projects if you can do those. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So let me go to your some personal things. So what are your biggest wins, losses, and surprising events in your career? Just out of curiosity. Surprising events. You know, some of the situations I think that I, uh, I get into are things that stick in my memory. Like people ask me, they said, oh, you know, you did, you know, Burj Dubai, you did the Pearl River Tower, you know, mm-hmm. this, that, which is your, your favorite project in uh, and I think my favorite project thus far was a 1,000 square foot project uh, here in Washington, D.C. Really? A bunch of years ago. And it was within the Museum of American History. We won the contract to work on the renovation of that building. And back at that time, and you may remember this, John, but you'd walk in the door and the Star Spangled Banner was kind of like hanging in the center of the museum. Mm-hmm. And it was tacked along the wall. But there was a big piece missing at the bottom. So that people would understand that the entire, what the flag looked like in terms of scale, they painted the wall where the missing parts were so that you could see the whole flag. <laughs> so the start, you know, this was the original flag that flew over Fort McHenry during the Battle of 1812 and inspired Francis Scott Key to write the poem, which became the Star Spangled Banner and all, all that right, good stuff. Right. Uh, it had bounced around in different look. It was over in the arts and industries building for a long time. And it was here. It was it was in really bad shape. So the plan was to essentially roll it up, take it to an outside facility, have it cleaned and repaired, and then bring it and hang it back on the wall again. They were having all kinds of logistical issues on how to kind of get it through the doors and all that kind of stuff. So so I was part of the team and I said, why, why are we doing this? This is, you know, you're going to have to build a special laboratory to uh, restore this anyways. Why don't you build the laboratory here within the museum? And then you can put a big glass wall around it. And then the visitors would have an opportunity to, uh, you know, to see the flag being restored. And they were like, that's an awesome idea. So everybody got on board with that idea and, and we moved forward. And it was just a fascinating experience because prior to that, you know, they would do a lot of surveys in the museum and people would say, what did you think about Dorothy's ruby slippers? You know, what did you think about the Star Spangled Banner? And a lot of people are saying, oh, I didn't see it. It's like, oh, it's right there. You're standing next to it. It's up there pinned along the wall with all with the paint above the painted portion of the of the wall. Oh, I missed it. Yeah. When they moved it down, we, we, we designed this lab and it was a 1,000 square foot laboratory and it was in the corner of the museum. And we built this gantry where the flag would lie on top of it. And there was this device that would move back and forth over the flag without touching it. And these, this conservation group, they would wear the bunny suits and, and the breathing apparatus and all that. And they would lie on their stomachs for hours where they would remove kind of one stitch at a time. So wow. when you walked up to this thing, it looked like an operating room. And people really reacted to this. They had people crying, uh, people passing out. You know, it's like this is a national treasure in surgery. <laughs> so, so that, that was a, that, that was an amazing experience to watch. That I had a, a great sense of pride associated with uh, 
that project. And then when it was done, we were also asked to design the, the, the final exhibit within the American Museum. So right now, it's no longer kind of dangling in the sunlight in the center of the, that they created its own space. And, and, and you walk around and it's a very private experience. You walk around the back of it, it's dark, solace, you know, you sit down, you have this experience with the flag. That that whole design concept came from what they learned about the restoration process and how people really wanted to have it be not that, you know, that the piece of jewelry hanging in the middle of space, but rather something that they could have that personal engagement with. So, so. I don't get to the really Smithsonian very. I don't get to the Smithsonian very often anymore, unless I have visitors yeah. from out of town that have never been yeah. to Washington. Yeah, but the next thing. time I go to that museum, I'll make sure I pay attention. The second part of, I guess, my answer to that question is, I, I think back to those days of working in that bowling alley underneath that bowling alley, <laughs> and, and I think, geez, you know, what what kind of business have I gotten myself into? I, I should have studied harder i should have become a lawyer i should have become a doctor i you know but 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 now i'm older and i'm reflecting back and i think to myself you know in my career i've met four or five presidents i've, I've met you know the heads of state of, of multiple countries i've had dinners with mayors of large cities i've been involved in planning of, of new cities you know i've, I've met you know you know, I, I, I've just found myself in circumstances that I would never, ever been able to have that kind of experience in, in any other industry that I could think of, you know, and I'm so glad I I kind of stuck it out in that bowling alley, you know, <laughs> and incredible. didn't kind of move on to, to do something else. Well, thinking so, about uh, when you were a little, a little guy riding on the back of a Harley, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> parents. That's just—it's quite enough. A long well, way you've come. <laughs> well, my my mother, unfortunately, she passed away two years ago. But she was a funny woman, and she used to tell all her friends how disappointed that she was. You know, uh, someone would send her an article of me uh, in, in some magazine, or or send her a video clip. I, I was kind of featured in a couple of like National Geographic specials and things like that. And they send her that. She said, I, "I don't know what happened." We tried to bring him up right. We, we bought him a motorcycle when he was a teenager. <laughs> you know, we bought him the little skull and crossbones and the leather vest. And, you know, and, and look, he's wearing a white shirt and a tie. And, you know, I don't know what happened to this kid. You know, <laughs> not our child. And, uh, she's, uh, <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> so, but, uh, what do you, what do you, what is your life philosophy with family, business, family, and giving back to the community, Roger? Well, I would I would say that that overall I'm in the best part of the career, and I tell all the folks that that work with me here, you know, you, you can break your your career down into three basic parts. It's not exactly one third, one third, one third, but you you spend the the, the first portion learning. You know, when you show up at our in our office, we're not looking for people to to really produce, we're looking for them to to really learn and absorb. You know, in the middle part of your career, you know, that's when they need to make money and we need to make money off of them. And then you get into this last third, and this is the fun part. This is this is the giving back part. This is where 
we should be focused on teaching teaching the, the folks coming in from our school that we should be giving back to the community that we should be educating and and, and to some degree celebrating you know celebrating the achievements that that we've kind of had collectively you know to this point so so we we're certainly doing a lot more kind of pro bono work now than I've ever done it in, in my career before but but uh, yeah a lot I've spent a lot more time lecturing in schools and and you know yeah focusing on the educational component of our, our business at some point in time I may look to back away from the the desk entirely and just move almost entirely into a more uh, academic type environment. Having missed out on the college experience when I was in my late teens and twenties, maybe I'll have one more shot. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> so what advice would you give your 25 year old self today? Um, probably not to take life so seriously. Uh, <laughs> and, and and to not be so anxious to get to that next milestone wherever it is and to really in, enjoy you know the journey each step along the way you know you know I, I i've always been a goal-oriented person and i always have been looking to get to that marker and from one marker to the next marker and i think as a result i've missed a lot in the in-between spaces so some days I wish I could go back and, and take some of the same journey again, but spend a lot more time looking around and, and not so focused on the straight ahead. Okay. So if you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say, Roger? Focus straight ahead. Don't look around. <laughs> You're going to be in a crash and it was in front of you. That's a good question. I have to think about that for a second. Kind of a legacy statement. Yeah. I would say, don't, I would say probably say something to the effect of, you know, don't, don't be afraid to, to be bold. You know, don't be afraid to, to do something that just because it hasn't been done before doesn't mean it isn't worth doing. Yeah. Great. So. That's great. Well, Roger, thank you for your time. It's very generous of you, of you to share this uh, couple hours with me to talk about your career, your background, and your business. And that's fascinating. And you've done some very interesting projects, obviously, over the years. So what I'm going to do, listeners, I will share all of Roger's uh, information and links to his website and some of those videos he talked about with regard to the pandemic and there's some obviously some interesting learnings there that we can share, which we obviously don't have much time, enough time to go through. But him, you can listen to his uh, his lectures on various th topics, and then some of the, those projects he cited. We'll try and pull, put some graphic links, at least in in the show notes for the for the for the episode. Anything else you'd like to, to mention, Roger? Before I uh, we let you go, I would say, John, I just thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to share my life story and you've inspired me we we do have a lot of uh, videos out there on a whole uh, list of topics but i'm not sure we have one out there right now on the topic of biomimicry and i i think i'd like to dust that topic off and you know, bring it back up to the forefront i think it's i think it's the right time to do that so i, so I thank agree you with for, you yeah thank you for reminding me of that and i'm gonna i've made a note here to myself so 
So for everybody out there, look 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 for the the next webinar series on our website. We'll try to get something out there in the next couple of months. That's great. Well, thank you, Roger. And uh, as I said, I'll be back to you for maybe a tour of the AGU building with my with my group. So Anytime. thanks again. And All right. have, a, have a good evening. Take care. Excellent. Thank you. Right, take care. So we just listened to Roger Frechette, who is a fascinating MEP engineer with a company called Interface Engineering. Roger had a unique background to leading to engineering. <laughs> Just kind of stumbled into it. Yeah. And so I want to now bring on my new postscript co co host here, who's one of the three that was in my last episode. The he's a member of the iconic journey, my group of young real estate professionals. His name is Ramiz Munawar. Ramiz, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yes. And Ramiz has a background in in architecture, he was at the University of Maryland and had an architecture degree and got a graduate program degree also in real estate development. Now he's with Jamestown, and he was particularly interested in this episode, and I will let him kind of take it off from here. What do you think, Ramiz? Yeah, that was a, a really fascinating episode. W- within an hour, we went from talking about biker gangs to the Burj Khalifa. <laughs> so- <laughs> So this episode had it all. His upbringing was quite fascinating from, you know, his father being uh, the leader of a biker gang to how he selected his major in college, which was a really unconventional story. And and that's what made it so interesting. And his career after that took so many significant turns. And like a river, he kind of just went with the flow. He moved from Boston to D.C. to Chicago and then back to D.C., and he talked about what relationships meant to him during all of those transitions. And how curiosity led him to explore so many different things during that time. So I think if there there is a theme here that I took out of this, <clears throat> it would be curiosity. And constant exploration is, is how we grow and learn. And that curiosity is what led him to work on you know, some of the biggest projects in the world and to meet influential business and political leaders. So I think there's a lot to digest with this one. What, what were some of the takeaways you had on it? Well, I think you, you summarized it pretty well. I think one of the most fascinating things is how could a how could a young man who grew up in the environment that he grew up in, you know, be as a baby being on the back of a motorcycle and riding around his parents, neither of them were college educated. He had the fortune, of course, of being blessed with uh, the ability to run fast. And that being, you know, that skill that he had was was what Real more or less brought him into uh, the opportunity to go to college because otherwise he probably wouldn't have even gone to college in the first place. So the track coach recruited him and he he was was going to head to Boston University and apparently for some reason that didn't happen, as I recall. And he, he just said, okay, well, we'll go to Southeast. Another track coach found him from a very small college that no longer exists, Southeastern Massachusetts College, and they he came on. He said, and the coach said to him, "So what am I gonna, what am I gonna study?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> here's the list of courses. So he just, you know, almost like he threw a dart at the board, and he, and he came up with engineering, mechanical yeah. engineering, and so he starts his his undergraduate studies like that. It's just kind of happenstance, but yeah. obviously he had. 
uh, an affinity for it. I, I tried to figure out what his mathematical propensity was, how he was able to do that, because mm -hmm. uh, he took it and just really ran with it. Then he goes to his first job is the basement of a bowling alley uh, <laughs> with a with a you know a local engineering firm, and he obviously must have learned something there. Yeah, and that yeah. kind of set his fr framework to then move into the larger companies that he ended up joining from there. Mm -hmm. So it, there's a spark there that, that hit him at some point and that not only interested him, but he developed this amazing ability to uh, look at things differently and to be very creative in his engineering career from, from basically from the beginning, I think. So yeah. I don't know if it was his off you know, off background and it wasn't as analytical up front that, you know, very methodical. It was more kind of off the wall that give him, gave some unusual skills. So that's just, that's my take from it. Just, he had such an unusual background that it, it may have actually propelled his, his unique abilities potentially. Yeah. And the, the moment he mentioned that he worked under a bowling alley, I immediately jumped to well, I wonder what the insulation was like back then because <laughs> working under a bowling alley constantly hearing those balls drop, you know, I can't imagine the type of distraction that would be, but but good on him to, <laughs> to make something of it. But but I'm glad you mentioned that point because that that's that's really what, you know, piqued my interest with this episode is, you know, is in his up, upbringing, academics weren't really considered an area of focus. No. And, and you know, he... he showed up to a track meeting and said, you know, I want to do aerospace engineering or mechanical engineering. So curiosity wasn't, didn't seem to be something ingrained in him at an early age. Nope. And as a result, he didn't really immerse himself in the college experience, but as a professional, he's very diligent about his craft and he takes a lot of pride and ownership in his work. So I'd love to hear from him, you know, whether he felt like, you know, missing out on the college experience and not really focusing on academics is why the pendulum sort of swung the other way in his career when it came to, to education and learning. You know, I'd be curious to hear from him on that. So what unique things that in his career that, that you found fascinating based on your, your education and background, Ramiz? I mean, put yourself in his shoes. How would you, have, you, know, you know, move forward in your career looking at from his perspective? Yeah, I think, you know, one, one thing he really mentioned that I thought was really interesting was, was on the topic of having perspective. He said that he had the opportunity to go overseas and work on a number of different projects in the Middle East and China. And that led him to learn a lot about the way that things are done. And conversely, he worked on some domestic projects here in the U.S. where he went internationally to learn about systems that were being in Europe uh, and elsewhere. And how could he apply that to projects here in the U.S.? So I think that mentality of constantly engaging yourself with innovative ideas and looking elsewhere for perspective is how progress happens. I think that the scientific and engineering community is very collaborative and responsible for so much of the progress that we see today. Oftentimes, they get seen as you know a subconsultant of the architect or just a small piece of the pie in the budget. And while that may be mathematically true, 
I think the good ones don't get enough credit for being really inventive and creative. So as ESG takes a stronger hold in the industry, I think and hope that there's going to be more emphasis on that. So what what aspects of his career fascinated you the most? Yeah, I'd say I think, you know, I've always been an advocate of looking at buildings holistically, right? My my interest has always been in the cross-section between architecture and structural engineering. Mm-hmm. Growing up, I was always fascinated with long-span structures, things like stadiums and convention centers and airports and you know structures like that, mm-hmm. places where people congregate under large areas. And it's difficult to design those spaces without giving heavy consideration to all the other elements, including MEP. And what really geeks me out is, you know, people who are really inventive about the way that those systems are designed. You know, not that I'm an engineer or know how to do it, but it's fascinating to see see examples of where that's done. There's a number of good precedents out there in the world. You know, I think the the Pompidou in France is an interesting one. One Central Park in Sydney also comes to mind. The Edge in Amsterdam is also another really cool project. And I think, you know, his dialogue on the geophysical union building was one that I, I really felt like he was really pushing as hard as he could to try and be as inventive and creative as possible. And the extent to which they went to create that innovation was just really interesting to hear about. It's, 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 it's great to have a client that just says, OK, you have an open canvas and, a, yeah. and an un- unlimited budget to be as creative as possible. And so your goal here is not to be efficient and build something that's, you know, economical for my for us. Here this is a this is a laboratory for you. <laughs> and you can you could design and build whatever you want as long as it could gets us to the goal of zero zero energy consumption. And yeah. so you know he he had apparently a template of over 50 things that he was looking at initially, and they narrowed it down to about 20. There were certain things that were just way, way out of out of realm. But, you know, he came up with some very interesting ones, which there's a whole video on uh, his website, which I will post in the show notes about those uh, different technologies. There's a whole, very detailed, but some there's some interesting ones. Was there one or two of those that particularly interested you, Ramiz, that he talked about? Yeah, I think the he talked about piping down to the combined stormwater and sewer um, pipe, which was, I think, over a 100-year-old brick pipe that was so deep underground. And they actually took the initiative to go down there and collect data for a year to understand its properties and characteristics. And that would eventually inform, you know, design decisions. And, you know, they spent a considerable amount of time trying to get DC water on board. And fortunately, you know, they understood where this was going. So I think to have that kind of not only perspective, but also patience, you know, to wait that long to gather data so you could make informed decisions. I thought that was really, really astute of him to do that. Apparently the control systems in the building are absolute state of the art. And they measure things that no other building measures. (laughs) As far as energy usage, water consumption, and usage, and and it's because it's it's monitoring all these systems on a real time basis. So, you know, it, while it isn't practical, it's just like any scientific experiment. You do things that are out of the, you know, out of the imagination and innovative, that aren't necessarily practical. 
per se, but at least they lean you toward things that would eventually become practical. And that's what I was trying to get to him with him in my questioning, because I've seen the building and I'm hoping to take our, our iconic journey community to the building in the next couple of months. But to all you listeners, if you're in the Washington area, the American Geophysical Union, their website, I think it's agu.org, they have uh, free tours of that building. And I think they have people on staff that actually will show all these. We're hoping to do it with Roger, who was the designer. So that would give a really interesting perspective to it. So any other points, Ramiz? Just a quick note before we, we hop into the, the Oxman interview, but I think he, he mentioned that, you know, they're almost never going to win a project based on price. And a part of that is that they're a mid-sized firm, so they can avoid, you know, sort of the bureaucracy that you see with larger companies, while also being large enough to handle complex projects. And, you know, he, he's proven over and over again that, you know, they are not an ordinary company. And if you want great ideas, there's a premium to pay for that. And myself having a design background, I fully support that thesis. You know, it, it's no different than, than, you know, the best doctors or the best lawyers. I think the best designers across the board, you know, have the ability to command that premium. And, and I support that. You know, you've heard the term architect mm-hmm. in, the, in the architectural field. Perhaps he's a, a, a star engineer or whatever yeah, you want yeah, to call it. There you go. We'll have to come up a term for that. You know, it's funny. I asked him about MEP vis-a-vis the other engineering fields to try to have him define that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I I thought his analogy was fascinating, which is you look at engineering building as like the human body and that the, what he's doing is all the, all the the systems within the human body that move the circulatory Mm -hmm. system, the digestive system, I thought that was an interesting analogy. Yeah. And when you go through the AGU building, American Geophysical Building, Union Building, you can see that almost in, <laughs> as he's talking about it, that, you know, yeah. uh, th- this, you know, this, not only the circulatory system, but actually the nervous system because of what he's created with the, with the controls. So in essence, it's that you can watch the brain center running all the systems of, of the building. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's it's like the human body in a way. Yeah. That's another analogy is which I, I really like was the analogy of the car commercial and how the marketing angle for cars has went from colors and shapes and even pricing to now experience and comfort and safety and technology. And we're probably going to see some of that shift and, and really already are with buildings. DC, as you probably know, has a BEPS compliance that has to be hit by 2026, I believe. Right. And buildings have to start hitting certain benchmarks on energy performance. And yep. that, that confronts us with the question of, well, what do we implement? What is most cost effective? You know, what actually improves occupant comfort. And that, that leads me into this sort of final point here, which is, you know, I, re- I recently saw a video from Mary Oxman, which explores the potential integration between nature and the built environment and how we can take cues from nature to inform our design decisions. And it, it pivots around these five tenants for neoecology, which they consider to be glass, polymers, fibers, pigments, and cellular solids. And it was a really fascinating video. We'll, we'll drop it into the show notes after this episode, but it was produced in a way that made me feel like I was in the future. 
right? I don't know if you got the, the same sense there, but oh, it, it was very futuristic. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, yeah. seeing silkworms, designing silk. I mean, silk goes back, you know, probably five to 10,000 years of human history in China, you know, the fabric creation, but converting, you know, silk fabrics that are usually worn on the human body or they might use for art or tapestries or whatever in China. Now to make them to the point where they're going to be structures or physical, you know, physical things that are used in real estate at scale and, and, and strong enough to be able to have structural characteristics to them and yeah, potentially yeah. systemic characteristics vis-a-vis the MEP uh, area, you know, the, the, uh, the moving parts piece yeah, and, and bringing nature into that process. I mean, it's only natural. I mean, you look at how things flow literally in nature and that's in essence what uh, this technology does to bring into into buildings. So tying in those th- that thought process, this uh, system you just talked about using the sewer system of Washington for tying into the uh, the heat transfer from the sewer into the building, and then using that heat as far as for for heating the water in the pro- in the property, and also yeah. I think you know just for the overall HVAC systems in the building. It's just why not use what's there and yeah. what's out there externally and internally and and recycle what you can create from what's there. It's to me, it's a it's a tremendous opportunity. Yeah. And and perhaps the best way to achieve net zero carbon, right? Exactly. Is, is to sort of stay local and, and figure out where you can cut first. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most interesting thing to me in that that uh, video was was sort of how we can use these five tenets to create geometric freedom or the the ability to mold something to a natural geometry. Mm-hmm. Here in the U.S., we often see buildings that are rectangular or square-shaped floor plates, and that's often really driven by you know the need to maximize FAR and returns. And in Europe and Asia, you definitely see some more interesting building massings, but I think being able to take structural cues from nature and applying that to building forms will really lead to some crazy ideas and most without any corners because you don't often see, you know, 90 degree angles in, in nature. So I'm really curious to see where where this leads to, you know, a revolution in building building forms, if you will. So talk a little bit about you had mentioned prior to our getting coming on about a structure that you created from glass relative to one of the projects that that Roger was involved in also. Talk about yeah. that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So, so as you mentioned early on, I, I went to architecture school at the University of Maryland. And what really grabbed my interest during that experience was model making. You know, I really enjoyed, you know, the experience of sort of creating something by hand. And as as an experimentation with the laser cutter technology, I built a model of the Burj Khalifa. This was, you know, way back when most people didn't even know what the building really was. This was, you know, 2010, 2011. And so I, I had built this model. And, you know, to me, the, the most straightforward and interesting way to create the structure was to cut through pieces of plexiglass and to stack this plexiglass vertically to create the form. And in the video, we'll, which we'll again post in the show notes, you'll see that some of the fabrication methods are really in, revolving around the same strategy, which is to take 
molten glass and use a, a pouring technology to you know, go around a basin to build upwards from the ground up. And in the forms, you can be really creative with it because it's, it's looking at it on the X, Y, and Z axis. So you can create, you know, quite honestly, almost any form you can think of, you can create with this technology. So I just thought it was a really interesting connection between, you know, the way that the laser cutter allows for you to build this sort of stacking glass technology and and what, what that could lead to at a larger scale. So we'll, I'll definitely send you the photos. You can take a look at it and feel free to post that in the show notes as well. What's interesting, as you were talking, Ramiz, it just, it, it kind of really tests your imagination to think, could a building like Burj Khalifa, which is the tallest structure in the world, I believe, man-made structure, yeah. could that be made out of glass? I mean, is that possible? And what, <laughs> Interesting question, yeah. <laughs> because what they talk about in this video is is the properties that glass offers with regard to energy conservation mm -hmm. and and usage and if built if structured properly would have as as, as durable a strength yeah. as other yeah. others others you know as metals and 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 other fibers that you you would build with yeah i think to, to accomplish that i think we'd need to study what the recyclability of glass is you know it, it comes from sand so there's which is a limited resource but i think there's there's going to be a way to make it stronger and more durable and more malleable we, we probably when you say sand sand is a limited resource what do you mean by that i mean, I mean well, yes. sahara desert has a little bit of sand in it <laughs> yeah yeah but but there's there's as i understand it correctly and i could be wrong about this but only certain types of sand can actually be used to produce glass um, ah, okay. in the same way that there's varying levels of strength with concrete. Mm -hmm. um, sand is the same. And so you, you can't just take, you know, any sand that exists and melt it and turn it into glass. I, I think the, the Arabian Peninsula has a lot of the sand and, and Australia to some extent has the sand that creates the strongest glass. But I could be wrong about that. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, it's it's a fascinating technology, among others, and what Roger has, has accomplished in his career is fascinating. And I, I liked your idea of the, uh, you know, I'm doing the really unusual thing, so I should be paid for it. <laughs> and yeah. he's, and yeah. he's, you know, he's obviously done that. And from his background, you would never have predicted that which is kind yeah. of interesting. And that's what's yeah. kind of fascinating about which this he, story. Which he pointed to that at the end, right? When, when he talked about, you know, he, he, I thought it was really funny, actually, when he said his his mother was disappointed that he was in a suit and tie meeting all these influential <laughs> leaders. He's like, yeah. well, where, where did he go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah. It was. So, well, Ramiz, anything else you want to chat about here? Or are we all set? Yeah, I think we're all set here. Really appreciate uh, the opportunity to do this and uh, we'll, we'll have to do it again. Great. Well, listeners, thank you for listening. This is another unique episode. This one here, I really only, is really the first, well, the first MEP engineer. I had a, a civil engineer on before, Kirk Medham, who actually has worked on buildings with Roger before. And so I hope to have other scientific people on real estate uh, in the future. My next interview is with a woman by the name of Donna Schaefer, who leads CityLine Properties in Tyson's Corner. So until next time, thank you for listening. Onward.